This is the Roar of the Lions UK podcast, the podcast where six Lions fans from around the British Isles get together to talk about anything and everything Detroit Lions. My name is Anthony Fitzpatrick and I'm joined this evening by Ryan McCluskey, which can only mean once again that another week of college football has gone by. And um, this episode's coming out a little late this week. I do apologise for that. That was on me. Work has been a little hectic, but we have an awful lot to talk about this week. I mean, the upset radar actually broke this weekend because of the amount of teams in the top 25 that lost. Ryan, um, just how, how did you find this weekend? Just gone a lot of results that we didn't see coming this week. No, this weekend for me was actually very disappointing. I was very disappointed in some teams. I expected a lot more from some sides. And like I say, I thought some teams would solidify their place in the top 25, but all they did was prove that they just weren't worthy of a place there in the first place. And there's teams here, like I say, that we're going to we're gonna crap on some teams tonight. Some teams have had it coming. They've rolled their luck a little bit, but that luck has run out for some teams, unfortunately. Yes, I know what you mean. There were a few disappointments. I just mentioned there that the upset radar was off the charts, but the one upset that didn't happen was the one that we both endorsed. Um, and we're going to talk about that shortly. But yeah, that team disappointed big time this week. So we've got a loaded show for you this week, as we always seem to do. Uh, we're going to go through the news first. We're going to go through some big uh, injury news regarding the draft. A lot of lot of shake up there because of what is going on. Then we're going to take a look at uh, week six of the uh, college football season. Again, so much to go in there. And then we've got a few audience requests afterwards. We're going to be looking at some uh, cornerbacks and we've also got a list challenge that me and Ryan have uh, compiled together. Um, one of our viewers has asked us to go and look for some guys who we might want to draft in certain positions, and we have done that. So there's an awful lot to go through. So we're going to dive straight down into the news. And the first, it's a bit of an administrative one here. So the NCAA Division One Council have approved a one-year waiver uh, from Tuesday that's going to allow college football teams to sign up to seven players to replace those who leave um the current rules state that a team can sign no more than 25 players to a scholarship in any year. That includes incoming high school prospects and college transfers. Um, but under these new rules, they will still be allowed to sign 25 players on the uh, on the scholarship scheme, plus as many as seven transfer transfer players as well, not just high school guys, to replace those who transfer out in the first place. Um, the transfer rules were recently loosened, so you'll forever hear us talking about players going into the transfer portal, moving on to different teams. It's a lot easier for them to move now, and because of this, coaches were concerned that they weren't able to replenish a roster. If they had a potential mass exodus, if they lost people to the draft, if they lost people to transfer, you see some big teams really struggling this year just because of the amount of talent they lose and also of them not being able to sign a full complement of high school prospects because they were having to sign 
you know, transfer players in as well if they wanted to replace senior guys. This this seems like a sensible one, I guess, there, right? Because as we've seen, a lot of teams do struggle because of mass exodus of players, but now they're still going to be able to get the talent of the future while drafting in a few more senior guys if, if they're looking for moves as well. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Like, say, if anyone doesn't know, before last year and the COVID pandemic, if you were an undergraduate, if you'd not graduated yet, and you wanted to enter the transfer portal, if you were going from FBS to an FBS side, you had to sit out a year, or you had to apply for like immediate eligibility, which they don't just hand out. But they changed it to say that people were losing a year, couldn't play, that you could have this punishment-free transfer. So last year, the teams were losing four, five, six, seven players because they, were, they could transfer to other sides, maybe if their last year of eligibility, without having to sit out. Like say that created some teams had mass walkouts. Teams were losing players left, right, and centre, and that means they're having bare bones this year. Some players, like say Trail on Burks, they didn't take advantage of it. Should have left Arkansas, had a one year, like say where he could have been in like a proper pure offense. But some teams players, like say they incorporated five, six new people on an offense. So I'd like, say this makes perfect sense. It's only fair to allow teams to just you know replace a few guys they lost. Like say, because if they're going to keep this ruling, like say, I don't think they will. I think next year onwards, it'll go back to the you sit a year because it creates mass hysteria in the transfer portal. Like say, you get players transferring mid-season, which interrupts teams. Like say, it's not always fair on them if they lose a big name mid-season. You don't want to see it happen and it shouldn't be happened so frequently. But for right now, you need to offset that. You need to level the playing field a little bit to help teams recruit. So like say, while there's a, a leveling out period and things are calming down it makes total sense to have this uh helping squads just fill the rosters and get their boots again because some teams like say seasons were derailed this year because they lost a number of key starters to more high profile sides who wanted film for the upcoming draft so like say we'll see how things pan out in the next 18 months if the uh the transfer portal quietens down or not Exactly. There's been so much movement on there. And I think people have seen like the success of guys like your one of your favorites, Tanner Mordecai. He transferred out. He's rejuvenated his career and people have gone, oh, hang on, you know, let's all do this. Let's get the game tape there. And it's it's caused a bit of a ruckus. But like you say, hopefully it's going to ease out now. But it's nice to see a sensible piece of legislation been passed, unlike the taunting rule that just came through in the NFL, which is just a rule for the sake of a rule and is ridiculous. But moving on, um, Going to go through the power rankings this week. They have taken a massive turn. Um, I don't think anyone saw this coming. So if you don't know, in past weekend, nine teams in the Associated Press top 25 lost, including four in the top 10. Now, for me, I think that's the largest number that must have happened in some time because I certainly don't remember that many teams losing, especially sort of five, six weeks in the year when a lot of teams are set in there. Um there's only 17 undefeated teams remaining as well, four of which belong in the uh, the Big Ten in Michigan's divisions. We're going to talk about a few of those. But in terms of this, right, there's a few things I want to touch on. Number one and two, Alabama and Georgia. I think it's safe to say even at this early stage of the year, ain't no one moving either of those from those two spots, are they? No, those two will be battling off one and two all year. Like say, Alabama out of consistency, but Georgia have shown that they've had to play JT Daniels, Stetson Bennett III, and Will Beck. All three quarterbacks have played this year, and they still look just as good. That shows you how offense is running. 
It ticks seamlessly. It doesn't matter who steps in under centre. All three have taken snaps, including Beck, who's a freshman. They haven't played much, but he's trusted. They have that where they can just rotate quarterbacks in seamlessly. These two, like say, these two are on a collision course for a national championship. And it, it could be one of the best games of the uh, last maybe five, ten years because these two right now are riding the crest of a wave. Bryce Young is just swatting guys away. It's still his Heisman to lose as long as Alabama keep winning. He's a phenomenal young man. He plays with the prowess, like say someone that's five, ten years older. These two squads are just going to send even more players to draft this year and probably reload because that's just how they do it. They are like on their own pillar and everyone else is just peasants scrapping below them. Yeah, exactly. Like you say, Alabama are just a well-oiled machine who don't seem to have any obvious deficiencies on that side. And Georgia, as you said, their their game's predicated on that front seven on the defensive line who just come in and go, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. And the opposition team are like, what the hell just happened? That that front seven is a fearsome sight and they're going to win a lot of games based on that alone. As you say, they've not had JT Daniels for the stretch and they're still winning easy. So, you know... I agree with you. I think that's going to be the national championship game. I can't see any team coming close to these. I think there's going to be some pretty hefty defeats, even in the playoff for any team who try to get in the way of those two. Um, rounding out the top 10, Iowa have moved up to third. They came up from fifth, um, representing the Big Ten up there, as well as Penn State, who are fourth. Uh, Cincinnati, fifth, Oklahoma, and Ohio State, the sixth and seventh. And rounding out the top 10, you've got Oregon, Michigan, the Wolverines, and you've got BYU, who have made an appearance in the top 10. I can't remember the last time they were ever there. I can't certainly think of one. And then just outside, you've got Michigan State in 11th in a glowing endorsement of the Michigan side, who are both still unbeaten. Um, There's four newcomers. Kentucky have moved up into 16th. They had a big win at the weekend that we're going to talk about in a bit. Texas, the Longhorns, Ryan's own Arizona State Sun Devils are back in there at 21 and 22nd, respectively. And then San Diego State have managed to sneak into the top 25. They're one of the few unbeaten teams left there as well. And uh, is there any... Any other comments sort of there? Notre Dame, they've they've slipped down to 14th. Arkansas slipped down to 13th. They both had bad losses this weekend. Um, it's just changed so much. There's a lot of teams that after this long, you wouldn't expect to be in that top 25, would you? There's not. Anyone that knows me knows I'm a Wake Forest fan. They're now sitting pretty in the top 25. People are finally waking up. The only undefeated, like say, one of the last remaining undefeated teams in the nation. They've played their easy games now. I know their schedule's about to get a lot harder, but they have real ACC title credentials. There's some games that are going to defy it, but they can afford a loss or two and still make that championship game. They've been so clinical to this point, and it's great to see them up there, like flying the flag for the ACC, which has been an utter crapshoot this year. What a disappointing division. Yeah, especially for the amount of teams in there. It is it is disappointing to see that there hasn't been more teams standing out of that, but it makes for an awful lot of fun. And say this there's some teams up there. Coastal Carolina see like sneakily gone up to to 15th who are in there. SMU are up there, or they've dropped a little bit, but they're still there. North Carolina State, they're still there. A lot of teams who, you know, have done really well and have really surprised us. So it is really good to see. Um one name you won't see mentioned there, though, just before while we finish this, is Clemson. For the first time since 2014, they have dropped out of the AP Top 25, despite 
a win over the weekend, but it was a thoroughly unconvincing victory, which is the reason why they've slipped out. So, you know, we'll uh, we'll see how they recover from that and whether they can get anything going in this season because they've been very slow so far. But moving on, um, now usually um, we will take a look at the upcoming week's fixtures at the end, and we will do this week, but there is one particular game that is so huge this coming weekend that it has defied the ability to go in that section, and it's made it onto the main batch of news here itself. This has been labelled by CBS and a lot of others as the bottom 25 game of the century of the week of the millennium of the lot, and that's going to occur this weekend. Two of the worst teams going who haven't won forever. And this is the University of Massachusetts taking on the University of Connecticut or UMass and UConn, as they are more commonly known. The last time UConn won a football game, it was against the University of Massachusetts on the 26th of October, 2019, nearly two years ago. Um, This season, they've lost against Holy Cross, who play in the FCS, and they were blown out by Army, who were a service team, who by all and large, shouldn't really be beating FBS teams like that. And then in UMass's case, it's even worse. Their suffering has been immense. Their last win came on September 28th, 2019. So that's over two years ago now um, when they played against Akron. They've only put up 10 points in their last two games. And this, this is just truly a battle of two heavyweights at the wrong end of the fixture spectrum. And it's a, it's a fixture that is that bad that you actually look forward to watching it. And I'm going to do so. Ryan, um, <laughs> this is a dumpster fire, isn't it? It does. It Like you say, it's bad. Like you say, two teams, 0-1-5, like you say, squaring it off. Like you say, they're purely playing for like pride at this point in the season. Like I say, whoever gets this win is going to feel great about themselves. Whoever takes the loss, like, is going to be absolutely mortified. Like, say, one point team, like, say, UMass has struggled to score any points this year. I can't see any way that they win that game. Even as bad as the two teams are, I would, I would put a large amount of money on UConn somehow, something getting over the line because I think they can just offer a little bit more. But, like, say, there's no confidence. It could be an absolute shootout. It could be a, it could be a seven six, and I think that's kind of what makes it fun. Like it's not funny for the head coaches because, like, I say this is this is the game that will get someone fired. Like, I say right now, like, I say they're already on an in, interim head coach. UConn, if UMass lose and they've got the head coach, he's gone. The staff will be cleared out. The fans, like, I say someone's going to storm the field, whether they're happy or not. Goalposts going to come down, and like you say, it's. It's so bad, it's good, which means a lot of people watch it. I thoroughly hope they televise this game just because of how much is on the line. This is probably the only winnable game for both teams all year, potentially. It's like you say, it's, it resonates very much with, with our Lions. Oh, yes. Well, I think I think maybe these even these two supersede those low depths at the minute. But yeah, I, I severely hope I can watch this. It's, it's great when you get national media attention on your game, just not when you're that bad that they want to check you out just to see how bad you are. But, 
you know, hopefully we do get to we do get to watch that one, um, and we'll see what happens. Um, ending the news this week, just because we are recording on a Friday as opposed to a Wednesday. Uh, there's already been a couple of games this week. There's one ranked team who's played, and that was uh, the number 15 seed, Coastal Carolina. They put away Arkansas State 52 to 20. Grayson McCall went 18 of 23 for 365 yards and four touchdowns. And Isaiah Likely created a new record. He became the first tight end in Sunbelt history to catch for four touchdowns in a game. He had eight passes for 232 yards and four touchdowns, as well as a 99-yard effort on the first play of the game. Ryan, Grayson McCall, when do we start talking about him as uh, as a player in the QB in the QB class for this upcoming draft? Because I absolutely love him as a quarterback, and I think there's a lot he can transfer up to the next level. Yes, he's got a lot of developing to do, but this Coastal Carolina offense have been putting teams to the sword for so long now, and he's a huge part of this effort. I thought Coastal Carolina were going to be a fluke. Last year, they were fantastic. I didn't assume that they'd be able to repeat it. Like I say, they've got DeJordan Strong, who, was, who looks fantastic. They sent a defensive end to the NFL last year. Grayson McCall, who looks like a really confident quarterback riding the crest of a wave. Like I say, and they're not beating mugs. Like, like last year, they picked up that game with BYU at the last second because they thought we we're going to take them on. And both teams put on a show. Like that fixture wasn't even arranged last year. They just decided we're going to go hell for leather. We're going to put the unbeaten streak on. Like I say, it was a fantastic game. Like I say, and this year they're just handling business yet again. Like I say, they're, they're really well coached. I know they've got a young head coach. I think right now you have to look at uh, Grayson McCall as one of those proper projects that, like I say, you could keep around for a few years. It could be someone like the next Gardner Minshew. Like I say, he could sneak into those six, sevens, maybe undrafted, but there's no reason this guy shouldn't be getting workouts and being on a practice squad next year. Like he's he's building up a very nice two-year worth worth of tape. Getting to the senior ball where he meets the NFL coaches. He's the kind of guy I think that coaches will probably fall in love with. He'll be willing to learn, take everything on board. He's got a good build, a nice arm. Isaiah Likely, his draft stock is shooting up for someone that's a bit undersized at 6'2", 240, 250. He's not the biggest guy. He's not the most explosive, but he is doing really solid work this year. And he's someone that's also getting a bit more attention going towards the draft. So I expect two, three, four guys from this roster are going to be on at least practice squads next year. See if any of them make it to actual 53 rosters. But they're actually sending some players to the uh, the NFL now. Like I say, and everyone from a neutral standing is becoming a Chanticleers fan. Oh, God, yeah, I love to watch all the games. I try and make a point of, of watching every single one if I can. And yesterday was no exception. I mean, I just think Grayson McCall's playing so well at the minute. I would I would love for him to get drafted. And if he carries on this sort of form all season, then I can see a team going higher for him, especially if they want a developmental guy who they can turn into a real good player at the NFL level. So I'm rooting for him and I hope he gets the attention he deserves. Um, that's sort of everything for the news this week. Uh, we're just going to take a little look at the injury corner before we go into the reviews of the week because there have been some bad ones this week so 
we're leading off with one of the presumptive top five draft picks from this year, and that's LSU's All-American cornerback, Derek Stingley Jr. He is dealing with a recurrence of a foot injury that he picked up over the summer. He played the first three games of this season uh, before re-aggravating that injury, and he'd missed the last two games because of it. It's now come out that he's had a procedure done to fix the issue, but there's been no timetable given in regards to his return to action. But it is presumed that his season is just about over, if not fully over. Um, Stingley made the SEC All-Freshman team in his debut year in 2019, as well as winning the SEC Newcomer of the Year as voted by the Associated Press, and he made first-team All-American, as voted by the American Football Coaches Association, a feat he repeated again in 2020. And I believe even on draft analysts like Mel Kuyper's board, he's up as high as three on the list of prospects going into this draft. Now, I know me and you have been a little bit more critical of him coming out here. What, what do you think this does to his draft start? Is it maybe better for him having an inconsistent season to not be out there, or could this knock him out the top five? I don't think this does anything to his draft stock. This injury is bad for LSU, because they, they look crap. Like If anything, he was just plodding along. They were dinking and dunking, winning, losing inconsistency. He's decided to end his season prematurely to think of the draft. Like so If he'd have waited all year and had the procedure end of the season, this could have affected his combine. It could have made it worse. He's taken the decision to just say, do you know what, guys, LSU, I'm done with you. I'm thinking about the pros. I've got to look after my body. I'm going to sort my foot now, which I, I don't blame him. He does. He didn't need to play this year. Like He's got that freshman, that sophomore star tape. If anything, I thought he's looked worse each year. Like I, said, I think I, I'm not sold on him. I think he could be a bit flimsy at the next level. He ain't got the best frame. He's a bit scrawny. Like I say, I get he's a good coverage guy, and obviously I think he's still going to go top five. But for him, he's made a business decision. Like I say, and this will hurt LSU way more than it hurts him. But right now he's got bigger priorities because the Tigers are just not competing right now. So like I say, he's, he's, you could say he bailed on him. I think he probably could have played through it. But he could have returned this year, but he's chose not to. And I think he's done the right thing for his long longevity of his career. Yeah, I think you raise a good point there. I mean, I think the last thing he'll want is um, questions about his long-term health. If he is playing with a consistent foot injury, that might concern teams going forward. So I guess the best way to alleviate that is get the problem sorted. Like you say, go to the combine, uh, go to the senior bowl if you need to, and you know, just prove yourself there. And then your draft, your draft comes round. But I'm with you. I'm I'm not sold entirely just yet, and I'm not ready to pick a corner so high again in the draft. So hopefully, you know, he goes he goes high still, but just somewhere else. Um, moving on, the Oregon Ducks have suffered a huge double injury blow this week. Not even aligned to the fact that they lost this weekend as well. But running back CJ Verdell, who was having a hell of a season, has been ruled out for the rest of the campaign with a leg injury sustained in their game against Stanford at the weekend. He's scored a touchdown in every game this season so far, including 161 rushing yards and three total touchdowns against Ohio State when they upset them a few weeks ago. Um, he surpassed over 1,000 yards in 2018 and 2019. And overall in his college career, he's just shy of 3,000 rushing yards 
27 touchdowns on 542 rushing attempts. He's also got 610 receiving yards and three further touchdowns there. And in addition to that, Oregon also lost safety Bennett Williams after he was injured in training last week. Um, he's got 30 total tackles, three tackles for loss, a sack, three interceptions, one of which is a pick six and five passes defended. Um, the injuries are mounting up for them. They already lost Justin Flo and Cam McCormick to the for the season last week with bad injuries. And these are another two really bad ones, especially CJ Vidal around which so much that offense is based. Yeah, this this just curtails, this ruins their season. Like this takes them out of playoff contention for me. Like you say, because they used the run to open up the pass. I had CJ Vidal as my running back four in the NFL draft. This guy is going to be playing on Sundays next year. Everything goes through him. Anthony Brown is a good average, good quarterback. But he relies very heavily on this run game. Like I say, they're, they're depleted heavily. He's a great dual threat back because he's got that small stature. He makes guys miss because he's not that big. He's only like 5'9", but like I say, he carries himself really well. And I really worry what this will do for his stock next year because he's someone that has had such a bright future and he's really flown under the radar to say he's had nearly three back-to-back thousand-yard years. I think like I say, Oregon are losing bodies quickly. And I think they're... Uh, Pack 12, like they're hanging on to those title aspirations, but I think eventually they're going to be crawling over the line. Like I said, losing another safety. They're now like relying on uh, Vernon McKinley very heavily. They've lost players and key players, like say that defensive linebacker, back end safety, and now a star running back. And they're not a, they're not a pass heavy team. Like they rely very much on this run game to get them through and manage the clock. So it's going to be interesting to see. I feel like they're going to struggle now in the upcoming weeks even more. Yeah, definitely. They say their their offense is predicated on the run there, and he's out. I think Troy Dye, who's the backup there, he got nearly a hundred yards in relief of him. But I was looking at the injury reports today; they don't play till a week on Saturday, and he's already been rated doubtful for that one as well with a shoulder injury. So that just—I don't even know who the hell's behind all them. It'll be all on the quarterback, and you know he's good at running, but but throwing not as good and you don't want to be putting more effort on him in that game. Um, so yeah, trouble ahead for Oregon, it looks like, and they're going to be on upset alert, I think against a few teams they've got coming up um, to finish it off. Uh, Maryland. I hope I'm saying that right. Ferg. I've already done Arkansas. So Mer- Maryland standout wide receiver, Dante Demas jr. Is also out for the season with a knee injury suffered uh, in their game this weekend against Iowa, which we're going to move on to very, very shortly. He'd already racked up 507 receiving yards and three touchdowns in the high-powered offense of the Terrapins this year. And he's yet another wide receiver, a promising one, who's been injured on a punt return. His leg just went in all sorts of directions and it was horrible. But you think about Ronnie Bell a few weeks ago, whose season was ended on a punt return. This is yet another wide receiver who has very good aspirations in this draft. It may be a mid-round to late-round guy, but he shows an awful lot of promise on special teams and as a receiver, and he's another one who's going to have to overcome injury now and see what it does to his draft stock. Yeah, like you say, whenever you take so-called star players and put them on special teams, you're asking for trouble. Look at Jalen Waddell when he was returning all those kicks. He took a knock, like you say. He was badly injured going into that, that championship run in the NFL. Like It's always asking for trouble. Maryland, like you say, this compounded their misery. We'll go into that, but it was a disastrous week. Like I say, this guy was one of the leading receivers in the nation, part of a two, three-headed monster, led by Talia Tungavailoa. 
it, it was a horrible injury. It looked it looked bad. I imagine it's probably going to need surgery. And you just don't know what they come back from. Not everyone can just come back from injuries like this. Like it's going to be a real uphill battle now because knees from a guy that's quite tall and thin and lean, there's a lot of pressure on his knees already. And it just, it twanged like an elastic band. And I just hope, like say, that he can make it back for next year and uh, just rebuild whatever meant me had because he was riding the crest of a wave right now. Like say, to a team that's not got huge aspirations, but it's just more personal. Personal, like I say, it hurts the team, but it just hurts to play more. Yeah, he had a lot going for him in the draft this year and it's a shame. So hopefully he can come back from that and uh, get another go at it if he does decide to do another year instead, which may be the best thing with Taulia staying there a few more years. Um, right, so that's everything in terms of injuries for so the major ones. We're now going to move into the review for week six. Um, I can't believe this has come around so quick already because don't forget there is a week zero. So we're technically seven weeks into the season now. Um and there's a lot gone on here. Um, usually we'd start with the winners and losers segment, but there's been that many upsets this week that that one will sort of sort itself as we go along. So I'll quickly hand out the awards and then we'll just get straight into the games because there's an absolute ton of them. Um, so the beating of the week, obviously the win given out for the team by the biggest points margin. This belongs to Coastal Carolina this week for their game last week, not the one yesterday. They won 59-6 to against ULM. Uh, that's a 53-point differential, so a bit lesser than in previous weeks, but still a big one in itself. The upset of the week, now, Ryan's probably going to come up with another one here, and he could rightly so, because, as I say, there's been that many upsets this week. But for me, the big upset was Stanford beating Oregon. That one finished 31-24 in overtime. Um, Stanford had to drive to save the game. They drove all the way down the field about 95 yards, managed to pull it off with a few seconds left and then upset them in overtime. It was a result not many of us saw coming. I think Oregon were ranked third before this and they've been having a really good season. But Stanford are slowly just putting together something there. So I was really impressed with them. And I did put an honourable mention down to Navy as well. Another one of the service teams, they upset UCF 34 to 30, which was completely incomprehensible. If there was one result I didn't see coming, that was it completely. And then the statement win of the week for me, um, Alabama. They played Ole Miss and they beat them 42-21 to 21 after Lane Kiffin, the Ole Miss head coach, came out and said, grab your popcorn. We promptly did and his team got slammed in a little bit of an embarrassment to him. Um, Ryan, are there any of those you want to put any other games in for? Any nominations there? Yeah, no, I'd say we hit the nail on the head this week. Like, it's funny because we should have seen this coming because Stanford upset USC right, and hurt their title aspirations. And now they've just taken another scalp. And they're such an up and down, inconsistent team. It's just kind of odd. Like, I, I'm not confident this weekend. Like, say, Arizona State, we actually have Stanford. And that worries me massively because they'll look at us as another ranked team to take down. They've got everything to gain. We have everything to lose. So I think. You can put them potential and upset alert again. And Bama was a weird game because Matt Corral did nothing wrong, but Link Kiffin were making stupid decisions. I'm pretty sure he went for, was it like on his only 33 yard line? He, he went, went for fourth. fourth down. There were four fourth and downs. Didn't convert any. Yeah. Didn't four. convert any. Like he, he agreed, like, say, we're not going to punt. We're just going to keep going for it. And he made an absolute tit of himself. Now I'm a big Lane Kiffin fan. 
like I say, they gave they made very easy work for Alabama, who just got great field position all the time. So like I say, that didn't hurt Corral's stock at all for me because he didn't make any mistakes. Usually that kind of game, he'd throw in exceptions, but he had a nice clean game. The offense just didn't tick, didn't get all done in the first half. But no, yeah. And neither, like I say, a triple option team that don't know how to pass going against the high-powered offense, even though it's missing Dylan Gabriel, you should ne- UCF should never be losing in Navy. Not any week is that acceptable. The military service teams are good, but they play smash mouth, triple option run football. They just want to ram it down your throat and they're one-dimensional and you should be able to stop them. Don't get and they rolled over them like that. That one hurts UCF badly. I think when we talked about Dylan Gabriel getting injured a few weeks ago and how it was going to affect UCF, I, I don't think we ever thought it would get this bad, though, losing to a service side. I mean, not many teams do that, especially one of their level. There's no way they should be losing to them in a month of Sundays. So, yeah, you know, great win for Navy. Can't say anything more than that, you know, props to them. And like I say, Matt Corral had a really good game, 21 of 29, 213 yards, a touchdown. One rush touchdown, no interceptions thrown. I think that keeps his stock quite steady. He had a good game. He just had a coach who uh, seemed to grab the limelight and was eager to put one over on his mentor. But, you know, his mentor has like a stupid record. Like it's he's like nearly 40 and 0 against his old head coach, against his old coaching staff, isn't he? It's ridiculous. Not, not one of them's ever managed to beat him. And he's just against, added. Yeah. Against the six. <laughs> Against assistants, but it was underneath him. He's twenty nine and zero, and against, oh, like, it, yeah. all his, against all his former staff, like say he's nearly unbeaten in forty games. Teams that have been lost, like no one gets the better of him. He's the Bill Belichick of college right now. No one comes and no one takes him down. No, and now Lane Kiffin looks really stupid, and he better hope that Old Miss bounce back quickly because they've got another big fixture coming this weekend, which. Fans are going to expect them to win. And if they don't, then he's going to be in a lot of bother. Um, okay, let's move it on to the games now. Then usually for this sort of section, I'll, I'll jot down five in the notes to give us something to go at because that's usually the ones that stand out. This week I've put in about 12. <laughs> so we may not dig down deep, as deep into them as we normally do, but there's an awful lot to go in here. And I think the first one we've got to talk about was our busted upset alert last week. And that was, of course, Maryland. Who went? Uh, who played against Iowa? Maryland's high-powered offense under Taulia Tongvailoa, coming up against the Iowa defense, which is an absolute wrecking machine this year. I mean, the amount of picks and turnovers they get is ridiculously high, and it was Iowa who came out in this one on top by the grand old score of fifty-one to fourteen. Now, just to put this into context, so in Maryland's case, Taulia Tongvailoa. He threw 16 of 29 passes, 157 yards, two touchdowns, five interceptions. Now, this is a guy who, before this game, was 10 to 1 on his touchdown to interception ratio. Ten touchdowns, one interception. He threw five in this game alone. He was pulled in the fourth quarter, and even his backup, who only had eight attempted passes, managed to throw a pick as well. And they only managed to get sacks on Spencer Petrus, the Iowa quarterback, twice. They didn't do anything on defense whatsoever. Iowa, on the other hand, Spencer Petrus, he had a solid game. 
21 of 30 for 259 yards, three thrown touchdowns. He rushed for two touchdowns himself. Tyler Goodson, the running back, he really stood out in this one. He had a great game, 151 total yards and a touchdown. And this Iowa defense, man, six interceptions, all from different guys. And the really weird part about this, they didn't have a single sack on Taulia, but they had six interceptions. I mean, this this defense is legit, isn't it? I mean, you can say anything you want about Petrus and the offense and whether it might be able to carry them or not, but this defense is just killing teams. Yeah, this this defense is gonna is prob is gonna take them to a Big Ten title game, no doubt. And this defense is worthy of a playoff spot on its own. Whether they'll get there, I don't know. Like I say, it's going to count the offense. But right now, what I said on Twitter, while well, like I say, I was talking to people, a lot of people liked Maryland this game. And I said they had to protect the ball, and they didn't. Like I say, no sacks. These were not, these were pure coverage interceptions. Like they were all there. They covered them. They had a blanket on these receivers. They didn't generate that much pressure. Most of these were all mental errors. Six interceptions this game was terrible for Tolia and his backup. Like they had sometimes a clean pocket. You were just seeing stuff that weren't there. Like I say, these Iowa defensive backs, they are producing NFL caliber DBs and tight ends in the last few years. I'm going to talk about one of them later, but yeah, this defense, the, the offense didn't have to do anything because they were getting great field position. When you get six turnovers, you can easily get three or four touchdowns because they just give you that ball and just take so much relief off the offence. Spencer Petrus is blessed with a defence that can get in the ball in his own half or in the opponent's half whenever they want. Like, it's going to take someone really special to carve up this defence. And so far, no one has stepped up to the plate. No, so just to put it into perspective, so Phil Parker, he's a former NFL defensive, but he's the defensive coordinator there. Um this season, through five games, they have 16 takeaways, you know, 16 interceptions, forced fumbles on there. And I mean, against Maryland, as I say, they had six interceptions. They had a fumble recovery as well. Out of all these, out of all 20, t- 20 takeaways, 16, sorry, they've got, uh, oh God, where's it gone now? So they've turned them into 75 points. The defense has directly contributed 20 of these points. They scored three touchdowns and they've got a safety. I mean, Jesus Christ, that that is a that is a juggernaut there, isn't it? And like you say, it's just gonna there's not gonna be many teams who are gonna be able to put forward the firepower to break it down easily. No, like you said, if you think about it, 16 turnovers, do quick maths, like you say, that's just over three a game. 100, yeah, 130, 140 points potentially. And they've turned, like, say, nearly eight, like, they've turned nearly all those into 80 points worth of touchdowns. So their efficiency on the offense is climbing because, like I said, they're getting the ball in great spots. They've turned most of them into all scoring drives. That's all you can ask for from a defense. They stifle teams, like, say, they control the clock as well. If you keep giving the ball away, you just let them use Tyler Goodson and he will run down the clock, especially in the fourth quarter. Like, look at Iowa State. They needed to play kill players. They needed to get stuff happening. But late in the game, turnovers turned into just running the ball and kneeling it out. Like I say, it's something that can carry an average offense. I'm not saying they're average, but an average offense can be carried by an elite defense. They say defense wins championships because it does. Because turnovers 
like say whoever that like say that uh, that defensive coach, if he's carrying on like these concepts, you can expect to see him being a head coach somewhere in college very quickly, or one day be like say a defensive backs coach, secondary coach, assistant D, like could be able to be in the NFL soon, like say, and there's got a lot of these players are going to be in the NFL soon. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a lot to love on that defence there, but I will shout out some love for Tyler Goodson. I was really impressed with him. Uh, he had some big plays in there. Even in the passing game, I think he got nearly 60 yards as well. There was one where he was just in the middle of nowhere and he managed to make two defenders miss, took a big chunk out. I think he's one we're going to be seeing a lot of uh, going into the future. But yeah, that was a big blowout and a big disappointment uh, from our point of view. Um, because we've got a few to go through all just touch on the Stanford game now. We we have mentioned it as the upset of the week. Stanford 31, Oregon 24. This was unranked Stanford against number three ranked Oregon, who had looked unstoppable so far. Um, the game turned in the last few minutes when uh, Kayvon Thibodeau got ejected for a targeting penalty. Him and one of the other defensive backs sandwiched Tanner McKee, the Stanford quarterback, and he got ejected. It was a very contentious call. I didn't think it was targeting. I thought Oregon were highly, were harshly done to on a few calls, especially on that drive. You know, it was almost Lions-esque the way they were getting penalized for stuff that I didn't think was the case. But, you know, Stanford were able to get up the field off the back of that with no cave on there. They had no pressure going on the quarterback and they managed to level it up. And then they went into overtime and they went straight down the field, drove it in. They made it look effortless. I've been really impressed with Stanford. I wondered how they'd react to losing Davis Mills last year because he was a quarterback I liked. But Tanner McKee's really becoming a favorite of mine really quickly. He went 20 of 36, 230 yards, three touchdowns. That hit he took from Thibodeau and the other guy was huge. He literally got sandwiched and hit to the ground and he was in pain. He had to come out very I think for about one snap or something like that but you know he took a huge hit he was in a lot of pain yet instead of staying on the sidelines he came back in he showed a lot of toughness to shake that shot off and lead his team to what was a shock victory and this Stanford side looked decent they had four receiving options who all went over 40 yards on a minimum of three receptions so he's got a lot of targets that he obviously is trusted to throw at which is always good for an offense when you're not when you don't have really elite guys on there, you need a good set of above average guys, which they have. And the defense is steady on Oregon's side. You, you can tell they struggle in the passing game. Anthony Brown, the quarterback, he went 14 of 26, 186 yards and an interception, no throwing touchdowns. He did get two rush touchdowns, but on the flip side, they only have one receiving option who went over 40 yards. And that was just on a single throw. Um, Obviously, they've lost CJ Vidal now. They're in a lot of trouble. And Kayvon got ejected. So he misses the first half of the next game as well as, you know, possibly costing his team in that one. What did you make of this one? Did you have a chance to watch this one? I did. And it was a great game. And I like the look of Stanford this year. And as I say, Tanner McKee's fast becoming a favourite of mine. I did. I watched the second half. Like say, like, say, when you see toughness, like, say, from McKee, you think of Andrew Luck, like, he, he, shrugged, he shrugged it off like the decent body, came straight back in, marched down the field in overtime. That was very Andrew Luck-esque. Like, he didn't even, if he stood in the pocket, he's going to take the shots. Like, say, he's uh, he's got a good arm, he's reasonably accurate. Like, he's kind of like, he's kind of like, say, a one-man show. 
Stanford don't have any stars. There's no real big names this year. He's working with a above-average supporting cast, and they're just finding ways, like say, capitalising on penalties. Oregon, like you say, they won't be happy. Like how well they helped him on that last drive, those needless calls. Targeting is a huge thing this year because it's getting thrown more than ever. Everything, like you say, you'll see you'll see players that look fine. And a big guy like suddenly looking at TV screen, they don't even call it on the field. Suddenly they're reviewing for targeting from who, where, what? Like it, it's just getting silly. It, it's pissing me right off. All the ejections, like there's just no need for it right now. But no, they should have like said on that drive they didn't keep it together. Oregon, they lost their heads. Like say Thibodeau will be disappointed because he's a leader, and they're just too one-dimensional. Like say Anthony Brown is going to get hurt. He's always trying to leave the pocket, scramble, throw on the run. He's not a pocket passer. Someone is going to light him up, like I say, and then they're going to have no one. Right? They, they've got to do a better job of getting a running back in, protecting. Oregon right now just don't have the firepower and they've barely got the bodies. Stanford, incredibly inconsistent. Like I say, we could, we could beat them this week. I, I have no idea what to expect from week to week, but you know they're going to be a tough game. And they're going to be a party pooper. They could very well sneak into a Pac-12 championship game because there's very little consistency all over. So no one's going to want to play them because they're just there to spoil the party and just uh, upset people. And they're doing a good job of it. Well, that's it. Now Oregon have lost that Pac-12. Both conferences are just wide open now, aren't they? There's no undefeated teams left, I believe. Am I, am I right in saying that? They're all they've all yeah. they've all suffered a loss now. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that one develops. So yeah, that was Oregon and Stanford. I'll move on to one of your favorites now. This was this was a barnstormer of a game between two very high-powered offenses. Wake Forest playing Louisville. This finished Wake Forest 37, Louisville to 34 in a game that was expected to be high scoring and it delivered. I'll let you take this one, right? because I know that Wake Forest are a, are a big favourite of yours at the moment. Yeah, this was a this was a clash of styles. Malik Cunningham is he's like Lamar Jackson 2.0. You see him play. He plays on the run, shovels, tosses, like say he's a very dynamic playmaker. Everything goes through him. And in Wake Forest, you've got a very competent, calm Sam Hartman, great pocket passer. Also a very solid defence. These two just trading blows. Like say, going into the fourth quarter, they were both level, I think at like 27. It was just end-to-end play. I watched it, it was a barnstormer. It was a great to see two ACC teams that no one predicted. One of them was going to lose their undefeated start. Unfortunately, it was Louisville. Like This would have been very worthy of going overtime. I thought at one point it was going to. But I think you've just seen the true resilience of Wake Forest. They know that they've got a chance to do something this year. Like, say, so Louisville, like, everything's still to play for in the ACC. These two teams are just capitalising on the big boys struggling, and it was just an all-round fun game. Tons of yardage. Like I say, there's, there's draft prospects on both sides of the ball, and it was a really great high-scoring game. Yeah, I think you mentioned that the, the, the two quarterbacks had themselves a day here. I mean, Malik Cunningham, he was on the losing side, but 
goes 19 for 26, 309 yards, two passing touchdowns, and then rushes 14 times for 46 yards and two rushing touchdowns. So, you know, he had himself a handful there. And then Sam Hartman, he went 23 of 40, 324 yards, two touchdowns, did throw one interception just to slightly block the copybook, but he rushed 10 times for 35 yards and a touchdown as well. These are two very promising young quarterbacks and, you know, we don't know maybe where their ceiling is at the minute, but they're certainly going up every passing week. And, you know, Wake Forest, do you think they, what's their ceiling this year? I mean, they say, do you reckon they can sneak into a, sneak into a good ball game, get a, get a victory there? Cause you know, this offense is, is really, I guess it's the defense you have to worry about because it does give up a lot of points, but the offense scores a, a ton every week. It seems. Yeah, the offence seems to somehow, like, say, dominate games and dig them out of it. Like, say, they're going to get a great ball game. They're already nearly within one and a half games of bowl eligibility, as are all undefeated teams. So they're going to get a ball game. I've looked at their schedule. By the time they meet, I think it's North Carolina. I have them at 7-1. and one. They've got an awful run of North Carolina, Clemson and Boston College. Like, they've had that hat to stretch. That's to finish their season. But you've got to look at those teams and like you've got to think they're there for the taking. This is a prop, this is a real chance at like a 10 and 2 year and an ACC title game. I think 10 and 2, they sneak in. I think they're going to be someone that will be targeting double digit wins. I think right now, like, I think they could beat Clemson right now. After what I've seen like in the last two weeks, I don't rate them. But like I say, they've got a tough game coming up. I think next is Syracuse who are always pretty handy. Like I say, they've got the hardest run of the schedule in front of them now, but they've got tons of momentum. I think, like I say, if they can just get to like that game eight or nine and still be unbeaten, like the world is their oyster. Louisville, for me, are too inconsistent. Like I say, they score quickly, like I say, but then they give too much time on the clock. You can't always rely on Lee Cunningham to score heavily. Like I say, he's not the most gifted passer. And sometimes, like you say, they can ask for trouble, like say, when he's scrambling in the pocket. He don't protect himself very well. That has a lot of running quarterbacks. He does take a few hits. But no, I think these two teams, like you say, have got a real chance at maybe nine, ten wins comfortably. Like I say, they could well be meeting each other again later on in the year. So I think at least one of them has got a chance to stake a claim in a title game. Absolutely, I fully agree there. I think just in Louisville's case, it's just a case of that defense gives up too many points, and even Malik Cunningham and Co. can't compensate for that, which, which is a real shame. But this was a barnstormer of a game. I watched it. I loved every second of it. Um, looking forward to seeing them some more down the line. I've always got time for those two teams at the minute. Um, so we've given out a lot of praise there. So we're going to go on to a game now where. I'm going to give out a lot of praise for one team and I think you're going to absolutely slam dunk on the other. And this was the um, number seven ranked Cincinnati Bearcats taking on the number nine ranked Notre Dame fighting Irish who, as Old Dominion Jack said last week, we didn't say much nice about him. I apologise about that, but unfortunately that ain't going to change this week. Um, a lot of questions about Desmond Ridder. You know, is he able to take that you know, able to get that signature win, go on to the next level, you know, show himself out from some of the other guys. And I'm very pleased to say as someone who has backed him and is right back on the train again, that they came through in this. Cincinnati ended up winning 24 to 13 in, in what was a funny game. Um, 
Cincinnati was really slow starting. Neither team could get much going on offense. But then in the second quarter, Cincinnati came alive. They put 17 up on the board. Notre Dame put nothing up there. And even in the second half, you know, Cincinnati should have won this a lot more comfortably. That's the one thing I'm going to say to to the negativity in regards to them. They should have won by a lot more. They gave Notre Dame a chance. But in the end, they came through and did more than enough to win here. So Desmond Ridder, he had a good game. He went 19 of 32, 297 yards, two passing touchdowns, no interceptions, which is great considering he was lining up against Kyle Hamilton and that Irish secondary, which have picked off a lot of guys this year. He also rushed for 26 yards and a rushing touchdown. And Alex Pierce, his wide receiver, had himself a day, six receptions for 144 yards. Notre Dame, they're they're suffering, one, because of inconsistent quarterback play, and two, because of a really bad offensive line. And just they used all three quarterbacks this weekend. That's how bad the situation got. Jack Cohn, who was starter, who inexplicably starts over Drew Pine. I don't know why. He went 14 of 22, 114 yards and one interception before he was pulled. Drew Pine, his replacement, only went 9 of 22, which isn't a very good completion rate, but he got 143 yards and a touchdown. And then Tyler Buckner, the third guy there, he got two passing attempts, didn't complete either of them, and threw for an interception. And it was very messy indeed. Um, go on, Ryan. I'm going to let you go off on Notre Dame here. They were frauds. We thought they were frauds. And the frauds finally got discovered. Oh, I'm delighted. Like I say, I can I can stop hearing people talking about Notre Dame. I said, like you say, they were the most unbelievable undefeated team. Like you say, scrapes by Toledo, got past Florida State, games they should have lost. And finally, like you say, life comes at you quickly, doesn't it? Like you say, got an offensive line like Swiss cheese, three quarterbacks, can't tell them apart. Like you say, sometimes they'll come to center and you think, who's that? Don't matter all looked crap, right? And like I say, Cincinnati should have put this game to bed. 17-0 up, like I say, at the half. They had a great second quarter. And then they just took the foot off and the gas in the second half and they gave them a chance to come back, which was the most disappointing thing for me. They should have at least scored 30-plus points, like I say. So they won't be happy with that. But fine, like I say, Notre Dame have been exposed. I don't know who starts at quarterback next week. Jack Cohen has proved, even though he's a, a well-travelled, highly thought of like incomer, he's not the guy. Like he ain't the guy to take him forward. Like yeah, he'll be lucky to keep his job going into this weekend. I think he won't start. And once again, their defense this week just couldn't bail them out. It's bailed them out before and on special teams, like six, like last week, the, the, the two pick sixes which got them over the line. Like that didn't happen this week, and. All their flaws and all their chickens just came home to roost and we saw the real Notre Dame. We did. They didn't look good. They got beaten away by a good Cincinnati side. And I would just like to say, after a little bit of doubt about Desmond Ridder, which I should not have I should not have fallen into the trap of believing all the negative people about him. I'm right back on there. He had a really good game. Yes, there are little bits he can work on, but you know, he went up against that Irish secondary. He didn't make any mistakes of note. Very consistent in the way he played. He rushes well. And, you know, hopefully they can end up having a really good season. Then they're not going to be in much, I think, you know, as much as I hate to say it, I don't think they're going to be 
much in the uh, in the playoffs if they get there, simply because of the strength of the top two. But I think we can class this as a really good season for them. And I think Ridder's going to go high in the draft. And, you know, he's still on my radar if we were to go and pick one as a developmental guy. But we're going to see. It, we, it, again, it was, another, it was another weird game, but it was a good one. And, you know, another that, I guess, technically has to come under the upset category because I still think Notre Dame were, were favoured to win. Um, yeah, so many games this week. Your team caused an upset this week. I know and you may, maybe to you it might not have been, but UCLA, Arizona State, you did come into that, I believe, as underdogs. They were ranked at the time. There were concerns about that offense and you know how good they can be with Zach Charbonnet and that. But in the end, you dealt with them pretty convincingly. It finished Arizona State 42, UCLA 23. What did you make of... Arizona State's performance in that one, and what did they do right to nullify that UCLA attack? Well, Chabonet saw a good game. Like I say, we didn't manage to slow down the run all that well, but Dorian Thompson Robinson struggled. We managed to contain him, give him in the pocket. He didn't get too much in the passing game. Like I say, we just it was it was key controlling the ball. Like I say, from an Arizona standpoint, when we win games, Rashad White. Chip Trainer and Daniel Nagata. We've got one of the best three-headed running back monsters in the country. Uh, we're running the ball right now so well, right? And that takes so much pressure off Jaden Daniels, who also had a great game last week. No interceptions this week. Like I say, he managed to find his mojo back on a passing offense. Ricky Pearsall, he had himself a fantastic day. Like I say, grabbed himself some touchdowns. He's a really underweight wide receiver. And it was just... It was probably the most complete performance of the year. I did worry about UCLA coming into this game. I thought, oh, like this has got a lot of potential. Sometimes when we need to win, like we just we underwhelm. We don't always deliver. Like I say, we're gonna have to follow it up with another big performance. Like I say, this time we're now facing a more I'd say prolific quarterback in Tanner McKay. But no, I was very happy on all sides of the ball from there. Like say, and now like say four and one. There's a few other teams like Oregon State, but this will hurt UCLA. That that loss hurt. Like they they didn't want to lose that game. Conference play is so important when like you've got a few teams that are all got three or four wins. We're two and zero in conference play where it really matters. Their way can't take losses. Like say the schedule for us like it's getting tough. Like say we come into these conference games now. I think we've got a real chance at making the title game. I'm not saying I'm going to win the Pac-12, but I want to win the uh, division. I want to win the Pac-12 South because it's been a while and we're, we're ticking over very nicely. And there's a few players that are looking like they're going to be drafted, which is always nice because we picked up in the last few years. But a few guys that have been picked. I'm hoping there's going to be a few more this year. Yeah, it was an odd one on UCLA's part. Like you say, Chabonet still got some good yardage. I think he managed about 80 yards Thompson Robinson, he had about 90 and he threw for 235 and a touchdown. Didn't, didn't throw any picks, but it just didn't have the usual vavavoom of that offense that we used to. They started off really hot. They've completely slowed down now, but I think you I, th- I agree with you. Your team came into it. The quarterback cut out the silly mistakes. They just played to their strengths. They ran the ball, meant they could throw it better. And, you know, they just completely and utterly nullified them. So, you know, fair play. And, you know, 
they need that result going against Stanford because that's going to be another tough one. But if they beat that, then I think you're really justified in thinking that the divisional title's there to be won. So, you know, fair play to them and hopefully they'll do well this weekend. Um, speaking of teams who've lost momentum, this is another upset one this weekend, uh, an unranked team over a ranked team, which has actually seen this team drop out the top 25. And it's a case of another quarterback going down to injury and a team suffering. We mentioned this last week, but Texas A&M, no Haynes King there, relying on Zach Calzada. They lost in a big upset last weekend, and they've lost again this week. They lost to the Mississippi State Bulldogs, 26-22. to 22. Uh, Both teams now sit with a 3-2 and two record. Texas' season is done in terms of trying to get to any sort of postseason or do anything relevant. Zach Calzada, 12 of 20, 135 yards, one touchdown, one interception. Not great stats by any means of the imagination. Isaiah Spiller did all right in the rushing game. He went 16 for 100 at six yards per carry, but they could get nothing going in the in the passing game whatsoever. Running game, you know, he got a, he got a touchdown. He got a rushing touchdown to Calzada, but there's not a great deal going there. Mississippi State killed them through the air. They only got 40 yards in rushing, Mississippi State did, but quarterback Will Rogers... 46 of 59, nearly 60 passes he threw, 408 yards, three touchdowns, led by Mackay Polk, who got 126 yards, two touchdowns there. Right, we were told this Texas A&M defense was meant to be good this year, but they've just had death by air raid in this one, and their season has just, it's not derailed, it's just flat out crashed, not even derailed. This is a complete and utter destruction of their season. Texas A&M are a perfect example of a team that doesn't have a backup plan. There's no plan B, C, D. You can't just lose your starter and everything goes to crap. Like Haynes King, everyone thought, this kid's the real deal. We've got a defence that's like top five in the nation. We're making a playoff run. Oh, no, King's got hurt. Like, quarterback's gone down. We can still ride on this defence. Nope. Like, say... They got taught a lesson the hard way. They went to the Mike Leach hard school of Knox. Hard school of Knox, like I said, air raid football. Will Rogers is a very interesting quarterback. He has got a fantastic arm. He's got a good build. And he was just slinging it, like I said. He was testing those defensive backs and they failed miserably. They couldn't cover anyone, like I said. Everyone was just running free crossing routes. They had no idea what was going on after time, Texas A&M defence. Like I said, and to say it was only 26-22 doesn't tell the whole story of how bad Texas A&M were, that they were just within one score. Because like I say, they didn't control the clock. They didn't manage to run the players. Like I say, this quarterback attempted nearly 60 passes, zero pressure. He stood in that pocket all day and you could just draw a square around him. No one got past that offensive line. There was no pressure. It was an awful game. And Isaiah Spiller, I feel sorry for him. He's worked on his draft stock. He's doing as best as he can. He's getting no help on that team. Like I say, their defence is pivoting to, like say, on, like say, they're collapsing. If they finish under 500, that will be a disaster. Oh, God, absolutely. You know, 
we were hyping them up as maybe one of the best teams in the country to start this season off. And now they're just fading without trace. They're not in the power 25 anymore. They're losing games. Like you say, no plan B. And it's really concerning. And again, they're another team we're going to have to look who they're playing and see, you know, is there an upset on here? Because they very well could be the way they're playing. Um, speaking of maybe one team who upset who maybe didn't deserve it, I don't know. We talked to one now who... You read the stats from this game and you think, how the hell did they manage to win it? This was yet another upset. This is a team who's now in the power 25, and that's Kentucky. Kentucky took down the Florida Gators 20 to 13. But just listen listen to this and think if this is a team who wins. Their quarterback, uh, Will Levis, Levi, Levi's, he threw 7 of 17, 87 yards, one touchdown, one interception. In the rushing game, Chris Rodriguez went 19 for 99 and one touchdown. They only tallied up 223 total yards of offense. Their defense got one interception, didn't sack Emory Jones once for, uh, in, you know, in Florida's team, didn't, didn't sack him once. On the other hand, Florida, Emory Jones had a decent day, 23 of 31, 203 yards, a touchdown, an interception. He got another 63 yards on the ground on 13 rushes. Uh, the Florida defense, two sacks, one interception. But how the hell did Kentucky win a game, especially against those with with that stat line, with those offensive stats? I watched it. It was bizarre. I think I read somewhere this was Kentucky's first win in Florida uh, in the state like since like the late 1980s. This one was not seen by anyone. Like I said, Will Levis, he's, he's a good, people are looking at him as a decent quarterback. He didn't show it today. Like say Chris Rodriguez is a good running back, but like say his yards per carry was very low. That offensive line really struggled. At Florida, we're going to talk about some of the defensive prospects. They've got a great defensive line. This was just an ugly, ugly game. And like say when it came down to it, they both struggled in the red zone massively. Like say all these yards were like between the twenties. Like so everything was working nicely across midfield. But when it came down to it, like say. It came down to field goals, kicking. Like teams just could not convert in the red zone. It was just really ugly. Like I said, ball security wasn't great. Like this is the kind of game Kentucky wanted it to be that way. It, they wanted it to be ugly and not attractive. Keep it tight, keep it scruffy, and that's how they ended up getting the win, which is a really big win. Like that, that really hurt Florida. Like I said, if you look at those stats on any given Sunday, pardon me, you should be winning that game. 10 times out of 10. Like I say, I imagine their head coach had, like, he must have been yelling after that game. Couldn't believe they lost. No, and I don't know what Kentucky did, but they managed to hold that running offence, which even turned Alabama over. They had great success, even against one of the best defences in the country. And yet they somehow couldn't get it going in this one. It's, it's a mystery, but well done to Kentucky. They're in the top 25 now. Will Remains to be seen how much higher they can go, but you know, fair play to them for getting there. We've already been through quite a few games, but there's still even more on here, I guess. We talk about Oklahoma briefly. They won again this weekend, but again, struggling to put teams away. 37 to 31 victors over Kansas State, who had been having a really good season up to this point. Uh, Spencer Rattler, decent day for him. He went 22 of 25, 243 yards, two touchdowns. He's thrown another interception, though. That's his fourth of the season, and it was an ugly, underthrown pass. Um, he's thrown for 1,260 yards. He's 10-4 and four on the season. 
they're doing well, but you can't help but feel that you know he's he's there's something in there that he's not showing that, that there are some worrying passes out there. And Oklahoma themselves, as soon as I know, they're quite high in the rankings now. But this is an easy slate for them on paper, and they're struggling to put a lot of teams away. Yeah, Oklahoma, are, they're another Notre Dame. They just don't look comfortable in any game this year. Like I say, they've conceded way too many points. That defence is getting torched week in, week out. Rattler's just doing enough, but he's making boneheaded mistakes. And like I said, they're unbeaten, but their form's not great. And they're going into a monster game. They're going into their biggest game of the season. They're going to lose. I have them finally. They're going to lose this week. I have, I will put good money on it. Like they're on upset alert. We'll talk about that. But no, they just don't fill you with any confidence. Rattler doesn't fill me with confidence leading that offense, even though they're scoring heavily. Like say he's he's throwing the odd interception. Like it looks careless. Like say it doesn't always look like he's fired up. I just I'm just not keen on the kid. I don't really like Oklahoma. Like I just want someone to like knock that smug grin off the face. And it's I think there I think that day has come. I think we said before the season, obviously the first opponent on paper who looked like it was going to cause many trouble is Iowa State in week ten. Before that, their schedule, given you know recent historic results, was very easy. And they've struggled a lot. I mean, fair play to Kansas. Kansas have had a good year, Kansas State. Sky Thompson was back for them. He threw 320 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions, didn't do anything wrong. Deuce Vaughn, the running back, got 155 all-purpose yards, a touchdown. Malik Knowles, the wide receiver, he pulled off a lovely kick return because Kansas were quite far down in the fourth quarter, but they, they brought it back to a respectable game. And for the second week in a row, he returned a kick nearly 90 yards, I think it was in this case, but it should never have happened. I don't know how the Oklahoma defense let him through to get there because it looked like he was going through such a short gap but yeah there's just some that don't feel right with Oklahoma this year the schedule how they're doing you know there's something wrong and as Ryan said we're going to talk about later they might have some issues this weekend you know that look that lucky streak might be about to be over um still look on here and there's more games um so for Ash who's one of our regular listeners on here we were talking to him last week about how poor florida state had been heaping on the misery for him as uh, as well as the lions and it wasn't a pretty uh, it wasn't a pretty state of affairs for him well we're glad to say this weekend that florida state have finally won a game and to be fair it was an absolute barnstormer of a game against syracuse they ended up winning 33 points to 30 um they were tied pretty much all the way throughout this. All Florida State got a field goal in the first quarter, but in the next three quarters, they they evened each other out. They scored the same amount of points in each quarter. There was absolutely no sort of separating them. Uh, Jordan Travis had a decent day. He only threw for 131 yards, two touchdowns and an interception, the Florida State quarterback. But he rushed for nearly 120 yards off just 20 carries and did enough for his team to get them over the line. Syracuse are a weird team this year. Um, they're three and two. I mean, some weeks they look absolutely amazing. Some they look bad. Um, Garrett Schrader, their quarterback, had a good week. He rushed for 137 yards and three touchdowns. Sean Tucker, their actual running back, rushed for 102 yards. They just couldn't really get it done in the passing game. Schrader only threw for 150, a touchdown and an interception. But 
Florida State have had a rotten, rotten season, and you're worried that they were going to throw this one away as well. But finally, finally, they managed to crawl over the line and get a victory in the bag. I didn't want them to win. I've enjoyed, like, I've enjoyed their demise. <laughs> it's been long coming, like you said. They've been awful. This game was very much like the Wake Forest-Louisville game. They just matched each other stride for stride, blow for blow, back and forth. Like I say, on that last Syracuse drive, I thought, like, I thought they had this in the bag, but no, they just stalled at last minute. I did worry, like I say, I thought Florida State, like they were killing time. Like I say, Ash, I know, was nervous, like they're waiting for that field goal. But no, they got it over the line. When the first win of the season comes, you don't care how ugly it is. You don't care what fashion it comes. Mike Norvell will be breathing a huge sigh of relief. All it's done is bought him a little bit of time. They need to follow up with another win. But like I say, they took advantage of an inconsistent Syracuse team. And like I say, this hopefully could try be the catalyst for getting a few more wins for the year so it's not a total disaster. Like I say, it was just good to get the monkey off the back. Sometimes you just need that first win because it won't pretty. The fans still aren't happy. Like I said, it's going to be still a struggle, but in the day, they took a little bit of bragging rights. So for them, like I said, they'll, they'll feel really relieved that they've managed to finally get rid of that goose egg. I was just worried for Ash's mental state because he was, you know, they were that close to winning and then they nearly gave it away. And I was just like, if they lose, the poor guy's just going to be in such a such a state. But it was great they were able to come through. I mean, the quarterbacks, this was weird. They threw for 281 yards and uh, three touchdowns combined. Combined rushing, they rushed for 250 yards and three touchdowns between the pair of them. I mean, it can't be that often in a game when quarterbacks rush for 31 yards less than their combined passing total. I think they're, they're two very run-happy quarterbacks at those teams, aren't they? Yeah, the, the passing offence has just failed all year, so they just abandoned it, and it seemed to work. Like I say, Syracuse, Syracuse, like I said, they couldn't stop anything. They just got gashed outside, inside through the middle. Like I said, Florida State just took advantage of, like I said, them being unable to stop the run. Like I said, they, they stuck with it and they managed to ride it all the way to an arrow victory. So, like I said, we'll see if they can keep it up this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just finishing this off, because we've spent a lot of time on this weekend's one now, uh, just to say one one fairy tale season took a bit of a hit and we've talked a lot about Fresno State and their quarterback, Jake Hayner, this season. He's having an absolutely amazing year. Or he was. He sort of come unstuck a bit this weekend. Fresno State fell to the Hawaii Rainbow Warriors, 27-24. to 24. Hayner threw for 388 yards and three touchdowns, but he also threw four picks as well. Now, he's had a really good season, but he did look out of sorts today. They weren't really helping him in the running game and he was 28 of 50. He's had to attempt nearly 50 passes in that one and it came back to bite them finally. He's, uh, you know, a little bit of bad luck came his way. Um, fair play to Hawaii. They had a decent game. Their running game did get going and they were able to put them away, but it was it was a disappointment for one of the early stars of the season, wasn't it, this one, Rye? Yeah, because Hawaii, Hawaii are not a good team. Hawaii, like I say, they struggle. A lot of years, like I say, they're never the best. And like I say, they just asked too much of him. Eventually, it was going to become a game where they like asked Jake Hayner to put another game on his shoulders and, like I say, put a lot of pressure on him. No run game, like to abandon too quickly. Like I say, he still put very respectable numbers, but like I say, he, 
he was forcing too many passes. He threw passes in at windows that just weren't there. And the uh, the defensive backs, like I say, just said thank you very much nicely. Took the field advantage. Like I say, managed to punch away a win. It doesn't hurt his year. It hurts Fresno State. Like I say, that one loss, like I say, can really hurt their Mountain West Conference title championships. But no, like I say, they'll, I think they'll bounce back from that pretty quickly. He's full of confidence and he's going to keep being a gunslinger. Yeah, it was such a weird one. They were up 24 to 10 in the last quarter and Hawaii put up 17 unanswered points. I mean, you think you're that far in front. Your quarterback shouldn't be throwing 50 times when you're so far in front in a game. Yeah, but you should be running. You shouldn't be passing the ball at all. Exactly. You know, and, you know, it just, you wonder why it happened. He rushed nine times as well. So it's just like, Jesus, give the guy a break. He's having a great season. Don't put it all on him to win games. Um, so that's, a lot of the games we could, there could have been more we go to, but we've got a lot of stuff still to get through. So just quickly finishing this off, um, your five to what you had at the start of the year, did anyone stand out this weekend or was it a bit of a quiet one for them? I know one guy will have done well, our quarterback. Yeah, like I say, Malik Willis. Like I say, he had a nice tidy week. Like I say, pretty much consistent again, as he is on the ground, like I say, more rushing yards, more rushing touchdowns. I think, like I say, he's looked better this year as a rusher than as a passer. I think I wanted to see this year more him throwing the ball, but I think he's leaning, like say, they just, they, they, liberty goes to what's works for them. Like I say, keeping him as a rusher works well. Like I say, but like I say, he's having a very consistent, nice year. Like I say, Corral had a tidy game, pretty efficient. Like I say, he was never in a position to win. Never got to like the red zone. He was doing his stuff on the middle of the field. Uh, Cleo Shakir, like I say, he's just having a fantastic year on a terrible Boise State team. I don't know what's going on there, but handsome Hank Bachmeyer is is really struggling, like I say. Interceptions galore. They got cooked by Nevada, but like I say, Shakir is proving that he is a dynamic threat, especially in special teams and everything. Like I say, he's already got return touchdowns. He's going to have a, a great year. Merlin Robertson wasn't asked to do much, like I say. Had a fair few tackles, like I say, looked looked pretty good, like I say. So, no, it was a relatively good week for all five guys. Yeah, I mean, Malik Willis, man, I mean, he threw for 287 yards, rushed for 144 and two touchdowns. I just like him more and more every week. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to give up a pick early for a quarterback, but I just I can't help but love him and want to draft him. I don't know about you. Well, it's one of the things, he's not going to be there. No matter where the LA Rams finish, he will be off the board by the time we pick that second. So it's it's time to, like say, decide to like put up our shop. How high do we take him? Do we want to take him at number four? Is that too risky? Or do you want to trade back and just hope he's on the board? Like, say, with the first pick, it's going to be a really hard decision. I really like him. He's just not going to be in that range of where we are because we're going to stink. At this rate, we're going to be picking top two. Like I say, it's, it's not looking good. And we're really upset. Like I say, I love Trey Lance. He's going to start this week. This kid reminds me of Trey Lance, just without, like I say, less stock here, but he's got a better arm. There's more accuracy here. Like I say, this, I love him. And I would love to see him out. For everyone that doesn't want the Lions to go quarterback this year because they think it's not a great draft, like just go watch Link Willis. Watch Liberty. They signed, like, say, a deal, like, say, with a, a channel to have all the games broadcast 
Uh, you just see how dynamic he is as a dual threat weapon. I would love it because he just fits that mould of new NFL football. Oh, God, yeah. The dual threat quarterback is the way forward and he's the next big thing at dual threat quarterback. And the more time that goes by, the more I'd be happy with giving away whatever position we have for him if we were to go that way. He's just, he's that good. And, you know, hopefully in the latter stage of the season, if there's some bigger games there, he can just show it. Because I know people are concerned it's an FCS team, but they're a good one. And Trey Lance has just shown that, you know, it doesn't matter where you're from. If you've got the ability, go for it. Um, one quarterback who may be there a little later, though, uh, this is in my top five, is Carson Strong. He had a good week, went 25 of 38, 263 yards and a touchdown in Nevada's 41-31 win against Boise State. Now, as Ryan said, they're having a really bad year, but they are the Mountain West champions currently. So that's not a bad result to have there. He's having a decent year, all things considered. Garrett Wilson had another good day, the Ohio State wide receiver. He went three for 71 and a touchdown when Ohio State completely and utterly ruined Rutgers. I think they were like nearly 40 up by the half. It was That was a one-sided decimation that was, and Wilson just went to feed. The one I was really, really disappointed with, and you already know what I'm going to say, is Traylon Burks. I watched Georgia versus Arkansas. I had a lot of hope for Arkansas in this one. I thought they'd been doing well this season. They got blown out. What was it? 37 to nothing. They got absolutely zero going on offense. They kept getting pinned back into their own 10. They couldn't get anything out there. And that that secondary of Georgia is just labeled with four, five-star talent. And they just absolutely nullified him. I don't think it was all necessarily his fault because he just had absolutely no help whatsoever. But as Ryan said at the top of the show, talking about the transfer portal, he should have left and gone elsewhere where he would have had a chance. This was a big chance for him to shine, and he didn't. It's not taking anything away from Georgia. They just put two hands around their neck and throttled Arkansas, and that was a really bad day for him. Christian Harris, steady again, a solo tackle, two assists, a tackle for loss. He's the linebacker at Alabama. They played Ole Miss. Not a great deal for him to do there because Lane Kiffin just kept going for it on fourth down all the time and turning the ball back over. Um Edifuan Olafosio, he was the big one this week. He's back to full fitness. He took seven solo tackles, nine assisted tackles. So that's 16 on the day. He got a tackle for loss as well. But Washington enduring another bad defeat against Oregon State. They're having a horrible year, but he himself is doing pretty well. So a mixed day. But Traylon Burks, I just, in a way, I'm glad because he's going to drop down the draft now and we might be able to snag him later. But it's just horrible to see him struggle. Because Arkansas are giving him nothing to work with. No. Like I say, it's funny, like, let's see, look at Olafosio. Linebackers on worse teams usually look better because they're just always busier. Linebackers on good teams usually just don't get spotted, like I say, because the defense isn't on the field that long. But Washington this year, their defense is playing 60, 70% of the snaps. There's no reason he's so busy, like I say. And it's, it's doing the world of him, like I say. You don't care whether they play good or play bad. Like I say, he's getting tape, he's looking good, making tackles. He's probably one of the better linebackers in the Pac-12 right now. Yep, I'd agree. I think he's having a really good season and I'm glad I picked him. I think he's going to do well in the draft this year and I'm looking forward to seeing if we do draft him or not. Right, so that's the review for week six done. We're going to take a quick look at week seven now and then move on because we've still got a fair bit to go through. So week seven, there 
and not as many big fixtures as last as, as weeks gone by, but there are still some really big ones here. And the one I've highlighted out as the big game to watch, and this is a battle for dominance of the Big Ten, which team is going to carry their playoff aspirations. And that's number four ranked Penn State are going to number three ranked Iowa, the Hawkeyes. So who's going to take charge of the Big Ten in the race for the playoffs? Iowa have a fearsome rushing attack. You know, that's what it's predicated on, rushing the ball well, using Spencer Petras as and when they need to. But they're coming up against Penn State's run defense, which is high level and has been known to deal with rushing attacks pretty well. They put away Oban and Tank Bigsby recently. You know, this is who's going to come out on top of this. And more importantly, which quarterback is going to do enough to see his team home? So you've got Sean Clifford, who's the Penn State QB, Spencer Petras, who's the Iowa QB, I've been quite impressed with Sean Clifford this year. I know you have concerns about their offense a bit, right? But I think he's he's answering a lot of questions about whether he can contribute enough to them winning. But this is a huge game, especially with implications for the Big Ten. How do you see this one going? I think from what they've just saw from Maryland, Penn State will go. They won't go conservative, but they won't take risks. Sean Clifford's not a risk taker anywhere. He's not a huge play quarterback. They like to manage the clock. Like say, they do their dirty work on defence, stop the run. Like say, I think we're going to have to see more of Spencer Petras this week. They can't just rely on Tyler Goodson, which is going to be interesting, like say, because I think this is going to be one of those... Re- this is the biggest game of the year so far for both teams. Like say, this is a real title credentials, playoff credentials. If either of those two teams won the number four slot, they can't afford to lose. This is a must-not-lose game because, like I say, this is going to be uh, their real chance to make a statement, like say, show they're the top dog in the Big Ten. I think this is going to be... This will be very similar to the Auburn game. Like, this is going to be on those like middle-20s, both teams. I don't see it being that high-scoring because I think both teams will show a lot of respect to the other's defence. They won't take wild, careless shots like Maryland will. be more conservative play on offensive calling. Like I say, it's whose defence, like I say, can uh, step up and just show they're the more dominant. Like I say, can, can Iowa stop the run? I'm not entirely sure. They can stop the pass, but if Penn State don't want to throw it deep and don't want to take shots, then they can nullify that either. Like I say, it's just going to be like, say, ball control, who can be more careful and who can, like I say, get established something on the ground. Like I say, so I, I don't know who's going to win. I'm not confident enough to make that decision right now. No, I, I'm not going to try and call a winner for this one either. All I know is both of them have fearsome defences and it's just going to be a case of which offence can do a little bit more. I'm, I'm actually going to be, go a bit lower than you and conserve that both the teams are going to end up in the teams. I think it's going to struggle for a team to get over 20 points in this one. I think it could possibly be that close, but I think it'll be a great game to watch, especially for those who love the defensive aspect of the game. Um, moving it on, so... In the Pac-12 last week, two teams there managed to upset ranked opponents and they're facing off this weekend. And we've mentioned it a few times because it involves your very own Arizona State and they are at home to Stanford. Now, this is a big battle in the Pac-12. Both teams have aspirations to go quite far and uh, make a name for themselves this season. How do you see this one going? Now, this could be high scoring. These two teams, like say, have got 
quite explosive offences. They've both scored pretty well this year, like say 20, 30, 40 points. Like, I think this is going to be one that I like the fact we've got home advantage. I feel good when we play at Tempe. I feel like we've got the crowd on our side. Like I say, we can manage the clock. This is a really big test. This is a, like say, can we live up to expectations at home? Like say, can we, are we going to fall flat? Coming off the big win against UCLA, like I say, they've just upset Oregon. They've upset USC. They've got another ranked team in their sights thinking, like I say, we want to be ranked for a change. They know if they win this game, they can sneak into the 25. So there's a lot to, a lot to gain for them. There's a lot to lose for us right now. Like I say, just at four and one, we're sat very nicely, one of the front runners. I'm hoping, like I say, that we can keep up this rushing offence. Like I say, we're, we're changing backs, using two, three backs every game. Very consistent. Like I say, we're at full strength. So I'm hoping that we're going to be able to control that clock, control the ball, no costly turnovers. I'd like to think we can win this one. I think we can both... It's going to be another high scorer. I think we can both get easily 30, 40 points if we want to, because we score quite quickly. I'm hoping we can get this one and sneak it out, like say. But I can very much like say, I am wary of the upset. I'm wary of Stanford. The big question is, though, because that game's technically tonight in the morning. It's not long from now. Are you staying up to watch this one? I'm considering it, yeah. I think this has got big credentials. Like I say, this one is a, a Friday night, Saturday morning game, so it kicks up at 3.30. Tomorrow, not Monday morning. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to stay up and watch this one. Well, look, I hope they manage to come through for you, man, especially if you're going to, you know, stay up till that time in the morning slash technically breakfast time or morning. You're going to stay up for that. I do hope they really do well for you. Um, looking at other fixtures coming up this weekend. So we've got a couple of good ranked fixtures going on here. So the next one, Arkansas ranked 13 at Ole Miss ranked 17. Now these two were humiliated respectively by the top two in the country last weekend. Both of them, I mean, Arkansas especially got absolutely dominated, but Ole Miss never really looked like causing Alabama any problems. Who's going to bounce back first in this one? Is it going to be Matt Corral and Ole Miss or are Arkansas going to, you know, continue to confuse people in terms of how they're doing. From my point of view, I see nothing but an Ole Miss win here. I think Arkansas were just really bad last week. I think Ole Miss's offense is electric when it gets going. I think they're going to put that disappointment behind them. And I think Matt Corral is going to carve Arkansas to bits. Um, how do you see this one going? Which, which one of these two is going to put last weekend's disappointment behind them and uh, put themselves highly back up in the top 25 again? No, I agree. Ole Miss, Arkansas aren't going to be able to stop this defence. I mean, this offence, like I say, Georgia shredded them to bits and control the clock. I expect Ole Miss to do the same thing. I expect to see, like, say, a lot of uh, Jerion Ely, Scotty Phillips. I think they're going to want to run the ball. They're going to want to chew up this clock, not give Arkansas that big play, explosive chance, like, say, say, Burks. And also, like, people are going to be looking at this thinking, like, is Lane Kiffin a clown? Is he going to take this seriously? Like, he made himself look stupid this week. Can he knuckle down? I think there's going to be serious scrutiny. People are going to be looking at this thinking, well, right now, like you say, people think you're a bit of a joke. Can you come up, get the business done? I'm liking, like I said, I think I can sort of got that big play potential. 
I think they can score a few points here. I think this could be a shootout, but I think Ole Miss will come out on top. I think Matt Corral after will feel good after last week. He didn't come out of the game, like say, no stinkers. I say this, but we do know that not last year, year before, he had a stinker. I think it was either five or six interceptions he threw against Arkansas. He will not want a repeat performance of that game. But he looks good. He's controlling the ball. He's protecting it. And I expect him to do it again. He's going to go for three, four hundred yards because he's riding the crest of a wave. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's got a point to prove and I think he's more likely to prove it than Arkansas are as much as I want Arkansas to do well because of Traylon Burks. I just see Old Miss been a bit too much for them to handle. Um, I'm going to go through one more fixture and then me and Ryan are going to put on our upset alerts for the weekend because I know mine is different to his. So one of the other ranked fixtures this weekend is number two, Georgia. They travel to number 18 ranked Auburn. And I've simply put here, and I know what the answer is going to be to this one already, but can Bonix and Tank Bigsby find a way to take down the Bulldogs? Because this is what it's going to take. Tank Bigsby is going to need to have the game of his life because Bonix ain't going to be able to do it. But is there any chance Oburn can take something from this or are Georgia just too damn good? Uh, no. Bonix is a ball job. Whenever it comes to the big games, he can barely fight his way out of a wet paper bag. That Georgia defence is going to totally stifle him. He, he pads his stats up against lesser teams. They're going to get comfortably handled this week. But Tank Bigsby might have himself a nice day. He could, I could see Tank going over 100 yards, but I can see Auburn scoring very little. I expect Georgia to uh, put this one to bed by halftime. Yeah, I think I'm inclined to agree with you there. I don't see Auburn doing much, but I do see Tank doing well. He got nearly 100 yards against Penn State and their run defense. So, you know, even against the best opposition, he can have a good day. So moving on to upset alert now, I'm going to do mine first. And I'm, and I'm sorry, Jack, but I'm focusing on Notre Dame, ranked 14th. They are at Virginia Tech. Now, I remember the first week of this season when a certain North Carolina and Sam Howell went to Virginia Tech, they went to Blacksburg and they were absolutely destroyed. One, by the intimidation of the atmosphere there and two, because Virginia Tech on their day are a decent side. You don't know which Braxton Burmeister is going to show up or whether the run game is going to be as good as it can be, but Notre Dame are wobbling because they've not looked good this year. They finally had their sort of comeuppance um, against Cincinnati and they're going to one of the few grounds they probably wouldn't want to go to at this point, away from home, intimidating atmosphere. I can see Virginia Tech causing the upset again. How do you see this one going, right? Do you reckon there's an upset alert here, or do you reckon Notre Dame are going to get over last weekend's disappointment? Like you say, Braxton Burmeister is a bit of an enigma. He's that kind of guy that can throw for 300 yards and five touchdowns, but then he can throw for 200 yards, a touchdown, two interceptions. It all depends which one of him shows up. I think this. I think he's going to have fun. I think he will pick on that defense. I think he's going to avoid Kyle Hamilton. I think, like say, I think Virginia Tech, like say, they can get after that offensive line. They know it's shaky. I I fully predict that Notre Dame use all three quarterbacks again. I've told all Dominion Jack they're going to end up using them every game. At least two of them are going to play every game. Going to see rotation because they can't be trusted. I think, like I said, they're going to terrorise them. There's going to be a few turnovers. Like I said, I can see Virginia Tech causing them a lot of trouble and potentially nicking that one. Yep, definitely. I think it has to be considered that they could come away from this one with a victory. Now, 
the there's only four ranked on rank games this weekend. We've mentioned three of them, and Ryan's upset alert comes at the last one. Ryan, take this one away. Oklahoma, Texas, mentioned. Texas, Oklahoma. Oh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> it is the Red River rivalry. This is one of the best games all season. Like these two really dislike one another. Like there's going to be scraps. I expect to see lots of flags. These two teams go at it. I'd say they've included the taunting. I expect to see at least one on sports for like someone saying horns down, I'd say. But I'm going this week, horns up. Texas, Bijan Robinson is going to have himself a day. He is going to run all over that Oklahoma defence. Spencer Rattler is finally coming up against someone that's competent. And I think this is the weekend that the Oklahoma get found out. Look at what Oklahoma, look at what Texas did to Texas Tech. They absolutely rifled them. They are someone that can score so quickly. Like they can take the ball away and they can ram it down your throat. Like say next minute, like say they've scored 50, 60, 70 points. And then once you get in the hole, Texas keeps you in it. Like say we've seen, like say the likes of Kansas State, Tulane. Teams are putting 30, 40 points in Oklahoma that have no right putting them on them. Think about a competent offence, which is good throwing the ball and passing it. I think Oklahoma are not going to survive this week. And I think, like I said, this is going to be a, this could be a 100-point game. Like This has got offensive explosiveness written all over it. And it's which defence can bend but don't break. Texas, Oklahoma going down. And there you have it. This week's two upset alerts, Virginia Tech to take down Notre Dame and the Texas Longhorns to take down the Oklahoma Sooners. It promises to be a really good weekend and I've no doubt that there are going to be a lot of shocks that will appear from elsewhere, as has this one. We saw a lot of results that uh, we didn't, well, a lot of results happened that we didn't see coming. So, you know, every week we look forward to this season it's just crazy at the moment and you know so there's your there's your big games for this week so we're going to move it on now we're going to end up the show we've got a few audience request segments we're going to go through um this one was given to us a few weeks ago so ferg who's uh, he asked us a question a couple of weeks back as i say he asked us about certain players who we might want to draft here specifically we're looking for a tight end two a mid to late round receiver an offensive guard an edge setter, a defensive back, and a kicker. And this is specifically for the Lions. So he wants us to go away and do our homework on these positions. And we have done. We've spent a lot of time on this. And me and Ryan compared our lists earlier. And we can tell you that not one of us, you know, we didn't get a match on a single one. We've got a different answer for all of these. So we're going to start with the tight end two. Obviously, the Lions require someone behind TJ Hawkinson. Maybe it's Darren Fells, maybe it's not, but we need another guy in there. Ryan, who who would your tight end to be in this draft? If you were going to draft the guy who is going to complement TJ Hawkinson going forward, who is it? I'm going for a more athletic tight end. He's a bit undersized. He's only 6'2", 6'3", 240. This is Trey McBride. He's the tight end at the Colorado State Rams. Like say. He's someone that's been around for two, three years now. He's a solid guy. He releases really well from line scrimmage. Like this guy has nearly 1,300 career yards. He's got nearly 10 touchdowns and he's averaging roughly through three years 12.5 yards reception. He's getting a first down every catch. Like I say, he's someone that is sleek. He's a savvy route runner. 
like you say, he's got deceiving quickness and reasonably good hands, but I think he's someone that like I want the Lions to set on him or two tight end sets. And like you say, Darren Fells is too slow. Now I want a bit of speed. I think Trey McBride is someone that once he gets the ball on his hands, he's able to turn up field, his look. He doesn't shy away from contact either. He's not someone that will look to run out of bounds. He will try to get those extra yards. And I think he's someone that we could get in those middle to late rounds. Not a big school, not a big school tight end. Like I say, might fly under a radar a bit, but could be a nice compliment for someone that's a bit more shifty, but a little undersized for position. It sounds a good option. I, I need to do some uh, I need to do some tape watching on him, but certainly from the sounds of it, a good option there. I had to change my answer to this one. Um, initially, I put in James Mitchell from Virginia Tech because I want more of a blocking tight end to come in for us. But his season was prematurely ended with a bad knee injury. And I've had to kind of uh, take that into perspective here. So I've moved to another guy who's a bit more effective in the blocking games. I think TJ's great offensively, but we need someone who can block in there a little to accompany him. And the guy I settled on was Austin Stogner of Oklahoma. Now, this guy is six foot six. He is athletically gifted and he is an absolute matchup nightmare when it comes to the pass game. He's, he's not had much in terms of receptions this year, but, you know, he's a big physically gifted guy. And we know Dan Campbell likes people who make matchup nightmares. If you put this guy on a linebacker, he's going to win more times than not. But he's got the size and physicality, which makes him good. In the blocking game, he's got proven tape showing that he's effective both running in the running game and the passing game, which for me is something we need because TJ is still working on his blocking at the minute. But more importantly, I'd like to deploy him more as an offensive weapon and let someone else come in and do the dirty work. So Austin Stoke is my choice for that. Although I will give a, a quick shout out if I was just been really, really greedy and just thought, fuck it, let's just go for all the offensive weapons in the world. We mentioned him once already, but I'd also take Isaiah Lightly from Coastal Carolina. Um, he's got 27 receptions, 513 yards, eight touchdowns in his time there. Um, that's just, Sorry, that's just this season. Um, the guy's an absolute monster. Um, and, you know, pairing him with TJ, who's already one of the best attacking tight ends in the league, for me, that would just be, it would be a bit of a luxury pick, but we could probably get him later. And I think those two combined would wreak havoc. Um, so next, we've got the mid to late round receiver. Who've, who've you gone for here, Ryan? I've, I've kind of pushed it here. Like this guy is having such a good year. I'm hoping we can get him in the mid rounds, but we might, I'm willing to push the bar a little bit. It's Eric Ezunkanma. He's a uh, six foot three, lean, like say a nice ranger guy. He's a guy from Texas Tech. And you got this guy's getting it done. He's making up for piss poor, inconsistent quarterback play from Tyler Shuck. He has nearly 2,000 yards in his career. He's got good length, a nice wingspan. And I've watched him play this season already. He's dominated a few games. Right? This guy is just, you can heavily rely on him. He, get, he holds all the passes in, like he's got a good range, like say passes thrown behind him, he adjusts well. He's a savvy route runner. I've seen him pull double moves, like say look off the safety. You can put him all over inside, but this is a guy that you will put outside. He could be our wide receiver one, wide receiver two. I'll trust him on the outside. He can run all the routes. He's got a good route tree and he's someone that just looks nice, like watching him fluid film. Could do with filling out a little bit, but he's got that nice wiry frame you look for. Like say, he's got that uh, 
flexibility and range. And he's someone that is probably creeping above mid rounds, but who knows? Like, say, if they tail off because Texas Tech aren't having a good year. But he's seen, I know Math Bomb, he likes Eric. So, like, say, that's always a good, he's going to help to have a good Raz score too. No, that, that absolutely counts. I think mid, you can start from maybe the third or fourth round. So that's absolutely fine. This is another one that got derailed by injury for me initially. I We've already mentioned him again. I went for Dante Dimas Jr. Um, from Maryland. But again, he's had a horrible injury and I don't know how that's going to affect him. So I had to change this up a little and I had to, well, I didn't borrow one from Ryan, but this is on Ryan's wide receiver watch list this year. And this is Khalil Shakir, Shakir sorry, from Boise State. He's having a great season. He's got 518 yards and four touchdowns already. I think 70 yards is the worst game that he's had so far. In a Boise State team that's struggling, yet he's still getting good production there. Over his career, he's got 308 rushing yards and four rushing touchdowns, so he can impact in the run game as well. But receiving, he's got 2,279 yards, 17 touchdowns. He helped Boise State win the Mountain West Conference last year, which is no mean feat. I mean, for me, he's he's absolutely the type of receiver who will give you great value in the later rounds. I don't know where he's at at the minute. I think last I looked, it was somewhere between the fourth and the fifth. I don't know. But I, I mean, Ryan, you know a bit more about him. Would you say fourth or fifth is fair, or do you think he's gone higher on this season now? Yeah, I'd say between like third and the fifth. He also offers that element we don't have losing Agnew. He's a dynamic returner. Like I say, he's got touchdowns through his career. He can take a punt to the house. I've seen him take kickoffs. Like you say, he's a kind of gadget do it all guy. Nice lean build. Like you say, he's someone that's very explosive and he's just relied on. Like Boise State have had like quite a few quarterbacks over the years and this guy's just got the trust of everyone. Everyone's looked for him. If the team don't play well, like you say, he still manages to just do his own personal thing, like you say. And when things go well, he plays fantastically. That's excellent. So he does fall in that remit. I'm glad. Um, right. So next, we've got offensive guard. Obviously, guard, right guard, may be a position of need next year if Halapulavati Vitae leaves. Um, who's your guard that you've picked in this draft? I found this quite hard, but I found the guy that fits our build because I don't know if I noticed in Detroit, we're like really tall, big guys. Like we've got guys that are all like 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, I've got Jackson Kirkland. He has uh, played left tackle, but he started as a freshman at Washington as a right guard. He played sophomore season at right guard, transitioned over to left tackle. So he's shown they can work on both sides, but he projects better because he's got better, faster footwork to play guard. He can work from inside out, outside in. He's six foot six. He's a man mountain. Like I say, so he's someone that can hopefully really show up on the outside. I think he's looking at rounds like anywhere from like three to four to six to seven. It's really hard to predict where guards go, but I think he's someone that can like work as a really good camp body. He's got that frame there. He's got nice handwork. He's got that pro NFL size with good footwork. So there's a lot to work with there. And he's very experienced. He's played quite a few positions. And Washington run quite a pro offense. I think he's someone that can be trusted to transition nice to the next guard. There's a lot to work with there. Yep, absolutely. I think I agree with you. Obviously, guard, it's really hard to predict where they're going to go. I think it's fair to say that the standout guy this year is Kenyon Green at Texas A&M. I think he's 
he's predicted to be a top 10 pick, even though they're not having a good year. He's doing well. But for me, I've gone for one of the guys who's maybe in the tier below him. And I've gone because I like where his strengths are. And this is Zion Johnson out of Boston College. He's six foot three, 316 pounds. He is a big guy. And Boston College have a great offensive line this year. Obviously, they've lost their quarterback, but they're still doing well without Jerkovic. Um, they're sixth in most rushing yards per game, which is about 186 per game. And they accumulate the fourth most points per game, 35.6 in the ACC. And this is, you know, you've got teams in there like Clemson, you've got your Wake Forests, Louisville, high-powered offences in there, and they're right up there in the mix. That's how good this offensive line has been for them. All five of them are really good prospects. He plays at left guard currently, but he can make the transition to right. He has played there before, but for me, he's, this guy's a run-blocking specialist, and you know, in Detroit, I want to see more in the run game. Um, he's worked in the triple option before he's worked in sort of high powered run offenses. He's very experienced there. Um, he's excellent in gap and zone schemes. He can do both, which that versatility is going to be huge going forward. And he's also got the athletic ability to develop into a good pass protector as well. But out of my guards, I really want to see someone who's going to stand up in the running game and do well there. And for me, he's the guy that fits the profile. Now, he could be quite high up the draft. We're looking maybe round two here. Maybe not where I'd go for a guard, but you know he'd be the one I'd want if we were to go for that because obviously we've already invested a lot of capital in that offensive line, and I think you do generally need to go higher to get the good ones. So Zion Johnson, Boston College, he's the guy for me there. Um, edge, Russia, where are we going with this one? Uh, edge, Russia, I'm going to Florida. A guy that stood out for the last, well, two, three years is Zachary Carter. Now he's he's got an odd build because like I say he's got that length at six foot four, he's rangy, so he can play with his hand on the ground when needs be, but he can also stand up, like say rush the passer. He's a, he's a he's a lighter 285, so he's not too heavy. So he's got that ability, he's got the motor. He can shift if when he wants to. Like I say, he's a big, long, rangy guy. He's got 15 sacks now in his three years. He's already at five and a half on this year. I think is key to anchoring that defensive line. And I think, like I say, with the Lions probably moving on from Flowers, like I say, I wanted someone in that Aquara build. I want length. I want someone that's got a bit of range to them, some long arms, big hands, like I say, and someone not too heavy. So we've got some interior bulk now. So I want some like leaner, stronger guys on the outside with a bit of pace. I think Zachary Evans is going to go, like say, maybe he could be like a second round guy. I think his projections leaning that way. So if we go, but I don't value Edge that highly. I'd like him to slip to the third, but like I say, he's on pace for easily smashing his season sack record. So I think he's going to start getting a lot more of a possible look in. Like I say, Florida, they produce a lot of good defensive linemen and edge rushers. He's just next up in that line. Yeah, I think. I think there's a lot of value to be had, especially in the later rounds for edges. I know we've got the big ones up there. You've got your Aiden Hutchinson, Chikavon Thibodeaux, but I think there's guys who can be found a little bit later on who offer quite a lot as well. And the, the guy I've gone for, and this is one who I would pursue a little higher up the list, um, is George Karlaftis. He's the edge rusher from Purdue. Now, I've watched tape on this guy, and I absolutely love him. He's played five games this year. He's got 16 solo tackles, five assisted tackles, four and a half tackles for loss, 
which can pile up to 21 yards. So he gets really deep in the backfield. You know, when he gets tackled, he can get at you really far behind the line of scrimmage. He's got two sacks uh, for an 11-yard loss combined. Again, can get at a quarterback deep into the backfield. Two, pass, two passes defended, and he's got two forced fumbles. Now, this is a guy who was, you know, predicted to be a five-star recruit. He was offered deals by Alabama and Clemson to go to them, but he chose to stay in his hometown with Purdue. Um, he's got 16 pressures in just in just the first four games this season alone. That's not counting what he did last weekend. But the thing that stands out for me, this guy has more pass rush moves in his arsenal than any other edge in this draft, more than Kayvon, more than Aiden Hutchinson. He's got all the pass rush moves you could want, which he uses to the best of his ability because he's not the most athletic guy in this edge class. But when you've got the moves, when you've got the spin techniques, the swim moves, all that, it makes your job so much easier. And the amount of times he's just able to swim by a tackle, get round the back and get in at a quarterback is is exemplary for me. Um, he's got versatility as well. He can play defensive end in a 3-4 or a 4-3 system. He's not just a, a one-system guy. And that versatility is going to be huge going forward as well. Because not all edges can play in both systems. And he's an exemplary leader on the field. He's he's a captain down there at Purdue. He's projected to you know reach a captain status in the NFL as well. Um, the only thing that's really affected his stock and why he's not getting talked about like Thibodeau is because his 2020 year, it was shortened, obviously, because of COVID. And he did have some injury issues. So he didn't take the sort of necessary progress forward required to be talked about like those elite edges are but that only means that he's going to draft a little bit lower than he should be going and someone's going to get absolutely fantastic value with him and that Purdue defense has a lot of good players in there and he's just one of them so you know George Karloff this he's one player really to look out for um defensive back next now Detroit needs a lot of these. It could be safety. It could be corner. Where have you gone for this one? Because, you know, board's open for this. I've gone for Riley Moss, the uh, the defensive back from the Iowa Hawkeyes. He's a little undersized. Like I say, I like him because he's got one thing the Lions don't have. He is a ball hawk. He has got tremendous hand-eye coordination. He's got, like say, speed. This kid has got two interceptions in every year. He's already got three now, and they're both pick sixes. Right, so this guy's got three pick sixes in just four years of college. Right, so he has got tremendous pace. He picks the ball off. He looks upfield. He understands quarterbacks. He already knows where the pass is going. He gets in the right position. Like I say, don't give away too many flags. He's part of one of those fantastic Iowa Hawkeye defences. Now, like I say... He could be a safety. Like he's built a bit like Quandre Diggs, like I say, but he's also got that limited 5'10, 5'11 build. I don't know if I'd, you can put him on the outside. He's proved that he can hold his own against some solid receivers. And I genuinely think this kid is going to be one of the next white, great defensive backs in the NFL. You don't get many white DBs, but this guy is projecting, like I say, to be a little undersized. But if you target him, it punishes you. On the clock, nine nine interceptions already in his college career. Three pick sixes. He makes stuff happen. He generates turnovers, and we just don't have that right now. And I think he's someone due to his size and his limited frame that will slide in the rounds. 
Oh yeah, I'm absolutely with you. We need ball hawks back there. We we need someone who's going to track the ball, who's going to get there before a pass is completed. You know, we've just been desperate for that for so long now, and you know, it, it's about time we draft a one. There were some guys in the last draft, you know, we should have gone for. I'm not saying his name because everyone knows how the obsession I had with that one. But uh, yeah, I agree. We need a ball hawk. I'm going to be very quick with mine because I've already mentioned him. Uh, DB I'd be drafting is Reed Blankenship from Middle Tennessee. Now, if you listened last week, he was part of the safety group um, that I had a look at. Uh, he plays for Middle Tennessee. Um, I've not seen anything less to you know dissuade me from him. This game against the weekend, they played against Marshall. Now, Marshall are a high-powered offense who can put up a lot of points on you. He came out that game with uh, five solo tackles, two assisted tackles. He got a forced fumble two fumble recoveries, one of which he returned for a 91-yard touchdown. Guy's lightning quick. He's athletically just different, and Math Bomb's going to love him. I don't know if he's done anything on him yet, but I think he's going to absolutely adore him. And he's got a pass breakup as well. For me, this is a guy who's just going under the radar because he's had a little bit of an injury history who's going to be available later in the draft, and I want us to draft him. This is going to be the next Richie Grant. Oh, shit, I said his name. This is going to be the next safety obsession for me. Reed Blankenship, get get familiar with him. I'll put highlights up there. I just think the guy's amazing, and I think he's going to be really good at the next level and someone that we need. Um, so, yeah, get used to the name. And we're going to finish off with a kicker, because obviously kicker's a very contentious point in Detroit at the minute. We need one. Anyone in the college level who you think can solve our kicking woes, Ryan? Yep, I've gone for someone that's just missed a consistency. That is Nick Skeeber from Wake Forest. Four-year starter. He's attempted 74 field goals. He's got 67 of them. That's a 90.5 percentage, which for across four years is fantastic. Also, he has never missed an extra point. He has got all 145 in his career. So he's someone that is consistent. His longest is only 49, but he's pretty much Mr. Automatic from inside of 50. And that's what I want to see. We don't have that consistency right now. I don't know if he's worthy of a draft pick. Even if he goes undrafted, it's going to be fantastic. He's got a reasonably good leg. He's very accurate. He deals with pressure well. And his experience, I'd say four years in the ACC, he's been asked to win games on his own. And from inside 50, you can put your mortgage on that more times than not he's going to make the kick and he doesn't lose any concentration, makes all the extra points, extra points win games. This is a guy that is very experienced, like I say, will probably walk onto an NFL roster next year. Okay, fair enough. And I started with a sooner and I'm going to end with a sooner. And this is Gabe, oh God, Burkic. Brewich, I think it's Brewich, it's Serbian. It's, a, it's an impossible one to pronounce. Um, but yeah, he plays for the Oklahoma Sooners. Uh, since the start of his career, he's scored 120 straight point after, um, extra points. He's not missed one since he started his career. This season, he's 11 of 13 on field goals. Six of seven of those have been over 40 yards, including two long-range 40-yard ones he scored this weekend to help them put away Kansas State. He's 37 of 43 on the career with field goals. This kid has a big leg. He has won them, you know, games in difficult situations. He's good under pressure. And I say he's never missed an extra point before, 120 straight. So for me, 
you know, this is the guy I want to be looking at. I think the LSU kicker, I can't remember his name, is really good as well. I don't know whether either of them are going to declare this year, but, you know, if we've got a throwaway seventh left and he's still there, or a, I don't know, maybe a little more, because you want a good kicker, I'd be spending it on him. So that's the guy there for me. And I'm sorry if I've butchered his last name. I really do apologise. Um, so, yeah. That's it for the you there, Ferg. You asked us, we delivered. So there are a few names for you to look over. Um, and right, so we're going to finish off now. We were asked in our Discord chat, I can't remember who by, and I really apologize. I know Ryan sort of dealt with that one. I saw it and I didn't really look at it. But someone asked us to have a little look at cornerbacks going into this draft because obviously we may have a need now. We don't know what's going on with Akuda. If he's injured, we've got a lot of undrafted free agent guys back there, and it looks like we may have to dig into the draft again. I don't know what your price would you, you would be putting on a corner there, Ryan. Would you be going high for one again, or have you been looking at later round guys for this? I was looking at mainly middle, middle onwards, like say third round onwards. I don't want to spend highly on another cornerback. No, I think I'm exactly the same as you. So with the corner class, we've mentioned him already, but Derek Stingley Jr. of LSU is the standout cornerback by by some distance. I would say he's he's projected to be a top five pick, and I think there's someone who's probably going to pay that for him. But, you know, we're going to look a little bit later than this. So having a look around, who 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 are the names who've really stood out for you when you're looking through cornerbacks, is there anyone who's caught your eye who looks good value for where they're projected to go in the draft? What have you seen sort of below Stingley? Uh, if, we're, if we're looking past the first round, guys, like I think there's three first round corners. I think that's Andrew Booth, Ahmad Gardner from Cincinnati, and like Stingley. I think those three will be off the board, like say, Ben in the first. Then you've got some other guys, like you've got uh, Trent McDuffie, like the corner that's at Washington. Washington are just known for producing great cornerbacks. He's holding his own for a little bit undersized. Plays at just around 5'10", 5'11", a little underweight. But for someone that holds the run on the outside, like I said, sticky, tight coverage. He's pretty physical, solid tackler. For someone that's not the biggest guy in the world, like I said, but he's got that good recovery speed. If you want like to go the other way, there's a guy called, I'm going to butcher him, I think it's, as Azia Caleb Evans, I think he's nearly 6'2". He's a big outside cornerback in the Missouri Tigers. Like, he's a big, strong, physical guy. Like, say, man press, like, say, he's someone that will impose a bit of a... Just, like, put some pressure on someone at line of scrimmage. May not have the best recovery speed if they get behind him, but I think they're two kind of guys that you can expect to see going in those middle kind of rounds. Like, someone like, say, third, fourth onwards. Like I say, they're both playing on teams that are having not the best of years. Like I say, they go against, like I say, some solid competition, especially, like I say, if you're in Missouri, like I say, in the SEC, it gets tested weekly. Evans, I think, has got that frame and build that you kind of want to see at the next level. So they could be two guys to look out for that I've seen. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think there's... There are certainly a few prospects in there. And like I said, I think I broke them down into a few different categories. So like you, there's the top tier guys. Like you said, there's Andrew Booth. Ahmed Gardner is the one I'm looking at. If we're going to go for another top level cornerback out of this, 
I think he's the one I'd go for. He's the cornerback from Cincinnati. He's affectionately known as Sauce, Sauce Gardner. That's a cool nickname for him there. But I mean, uh, he's already got, he's got a few tackles on season. He's got two interceptions already. I believe he's posted an interception in his last two games. That was including against Notre Dame. He got a good interception in that. He's got a few pass breakups to his name. And that Cincinnati defense has been doing pretty well this year. And he's like a rock solid foundation of that. So if we were to go higher on a corner and we were maybe going to use the pick at the end of the first round. I think he's certainly in the conversation for that there. Um, I would agree they'll probably, yeah, Booth Jr., this Kalia Elam, Elam, who's the cornerback from Florida. Yeah, he he could potentially go quite high as well. And then you've got Seven Banks, the cornerback at OSU, who's another who is possibly in that sort of higher category. And then you've got Josh Jobe, who's the cornerback at Alabama. He's another one who could potentially go quite high. Sort of in the middle group is where a few of the interesting ones for me are. Um, I've labelled out Mikhail Wright. He's a cornerback for Oregon. Um, obviously, they've had a lot of work on defence there this season. He's already racked up 19 solo tackles, nine assisted tackles, two tackles for loss, a forced fumble, an interception, and three pass breakups. He's literally been all over the pitch for these guys. He's He's... Um, contributed in all facets of the game to them. You know, as a guy who's got huge developmental upside to him and who may not cost you the first or second round picks the other guys are, he's certainly one I'm looking at there. And then the other one in the middle category is Darian Kendrick, who plays for Georgia. Um, he's got four solo tackles, three assisted tackles, a tackle for loss, an interception, a, a quarterback hit, and a pass breakup. He's another guy. He's working in a very... High-powered defense, though. That's the only thing I'll say for him for now. You know, that front seven there is absolutely devastating, which will create opportunities for him, you know, to influence, again, all facets of the games. He's getting at the quarterback. He's breaking up passes and coverage. You know, he's having a really solid year and another one who we maybe need to look out for there. And then in the developmental category, there's a few guys who I've started taking a look at. And one of these was because of one of the games at the weekend. And the first one is Koo Blue Kelly. He plays for Stanford. Um, I noticed him stand out at the weekend and he's had a very busy year for them. He's at 18 solo tackles, eight assisted tackles. He's got two interceptions. He's got a quarterback kit and he's got eight pass breakups over just five games. And I've gone back and watched some of the tape of him. And this guy has a motor on him. He covers, he covers the pitch so quickly. And, you know, it's great when he's going after a quarterback. It's great when he's in coverage, you know. I still need to see a little bit more from there, but I had a little look at the draft rankings for these cornerbacks and he's not high in any of them. He's potentially a guy there who's going to go under the radar and his, his, his stat line's huge for a guy like that. So, you know, he's one I'm going to be watching over very closely. And then the other one for me is Garrett Williams, who plays for Syracuse. Um, He's at 12 solo tackles, seven assisted tackles, two tackles for loss of quarterback hit, four pass breakups. Again, this is a guy who's getting a lot of work because Syracuse give up a lot of points and they're on the field for so much of the time. But he's another one who just you just see a little bit in him that is there to work with. It's not going to cost you a massive amount of draft capital to bring but he's a developmental guy with high upside who, you know, potentially when paired, 
with a senior quarterback on the team because I think, if anything, I want the Lions to spend a big chunk of this free agency money on a good cornerback. Not a bust, not someone who's here for a paycheck, but I'd like to see some senior help brought in to bring all these guys up to speed. I don't know, right? Out of all of these, who are you, who are you most like leaning towards at the minute? If you were to be pressed to say that you wanted to pick one at this moment in time, who, who would it be and why would that be the case? I do like Mike Hill, right? Like I've seen a lot of Oregon. Like he is a he is a good coverage cornerback. Like you say, he's got good hands, he's got good eyes. Don't jump too quickly. He's able to read receivers. Like say, if the ball's coming and he ain't got his head round, he's someone that played really well with Diomodor Lenoir. I think it was last year. He looks very much in his mould. Like say, he's a decent cover two, cover three kind of guy. Probably needs to work on the press, the man a bit. But like say. Actual coverage, like say working deep, don't give up too much, like he's able to keep himself on top of guys and in front of him. Like I think he's got a lot of upside and he's someone that people have noticed quite a bit. Like Six Oregon have worked on that secondary and getting turnovers. He looks like he's got potential in those mid to late rounds. Yeah, I'd agree. I think if I'm going for the middle category of guys here, um, I think Mikel Wright's my guy there from Oregon, certainly so far. As if I'm going for a top-level cornerback, potentially, then it's Ahmed Gardner from Cincinnati. And if I'm going for a developmental guy, it's Kublu Kelly from Stanford. Um, he's one I'm going to watch a lot more of, though, because I want to see what he's got about him. Um, anything else in terms of the cornerback class there, or is, is that about everything? Yeah, if we're going, like, throwaway pick, sixth, seventh, big undrafted, Arizona State, I've, got, I've had a look at the Walter football rankings. They include Jack Jones and Chase Lucas, both nearly four-year full-length starters, both draft eligible. I'd say they're both 5'11", so they're a bit undersized. They could do with a cheeseburger or two, but those two are very experienced. I've known them their whole careers. I'd say they started off, I'd say they've got multiple interceptions throughout the careers, both the names, solid tacklers, and they play well in press and man. So I do quite, I trust them. I trust them at line of scrimmage. I'm just not sure they both have that speed at next level, but they've definitely got something to work with there. And there's a chance that neither of you will even cost you a pick. So if we pick one up as one of an undrafted free agent, I'd like to see one of them. But I say they've both got the potential. Great. You know, if we can find one in undrafted free agency, even better. I think Brad Holmes showed this year that he's adept at using the free agency market. He's brought in some good players, especially corners. So hopefully they're there to catch his eye. Um, so that's just about everything for today. So it's, it's been another long one, but there's been that much to go through. We, we can't keep it short. We want to make sure we're doing a proper job with all these. And thanks to everyone who's, who's asked us these questions, who's asked us to do this. I'm so sorry for whoever is in our chat who mentioned about the cornerbacks. I will shout you out on the next one when I find out who it is. But hopefully you're a little more attuned to some of the other cornerback prospects in the draft that are not named Derek Stingley Jr. now. We hope that was a help for you. And for Ferg, hopefully uh, you've got a few more guys you can have a little look at as well. So just remains to me to finish out now. So our next episodes, um, Monday, the 11th of October, uh, we'll be back with our main podcast. We will be doing a review of the Minnesota Vikings game 
slash slaughter, depending on what happens. Um, it could be a pretty brutal one. So, you know, we, we, we may be a little brittle when it comes to that. So be easy on us when that one comes around. And then we are hopefully going to be back on the Wednesday next week. That's the 13th of October with our regularly scheduled Wednesday college podcast. And for that, we're just at the minute, we're just going to be taking a look at the week six review um we're coming up nearly to the halfway point this season already so in a few weeks uh, when we reach the halfway point we're going to do a a half season mock draft for the Lions, see who we pick now and then uh, compare it again at the end of the season so there is that to look forward to but as always if you've any scouting reports you want done any positional assignments any players you're interested in just let us know and we'll quite happily go and take a look at them for you and pass back on what we think about them um is there anything else you want to add ryan before we uh, go off the air this week yeah no no i don't think so that's it's been a busy week and we're coming up to ball game contention now this is where you'll see the games like six and seven where things start to take shape Yep, absolutely. Um, it's going to be interesting to see some of the fixtures we'll get at the end of the season, a chance for a lot of the teams to really come out and state their claim in a big stakes game. So uh, we will see. It just remains for me to finish off with our uh, our socials. So as always, you can find us all over the internet. So if you're looking for us on YouTube, you'll find us at Roar of the Lions UK. On Twitch, Twitter and Instagram, you'll find us at ROTL underscore UK that's all in capitals. On Facebook, you'll find us on our page, Roar of the Lions UK, and our Facebook group, Detroit Lions Fans UK, One Pride Worldwide. And of course, you'll find us on our website, www.roaroftheliondsuk.com. Um, just remains for me, as always, to thank Ryan um, for the show. It's been another great week of college football this season is really unpredictable and we're looking forward to seeing what uh, the next episode has in store for us um but we'll let you go anyhow ryan because you are staying up for a ridiculously late time to watch the sun devils so just remains for me to say thank you very much and one pride cool pride